everyone. Thank you so much for watching. This is the Goat Movie Podcast. My name is Angel. I'm Julius. This is a show where we love talking about movies, comics, television, and anything else that we're passionate about talking about. So thank you so much for joining us today. This episode, we're going to be doing a pitch. This is a pitch that Julius has started about two years ago. He started off with X-Men Part 1, 2, and 3, and has continued his legacy with the Fantastic Four Part 1, 2, 3, and you guessed it, Part 4 as well. All of those bad boys, all those pitches are on our Spotify and our YouTube, so feel free to check out all those stories. I highly recommend that you do that because every single detail is important and they are compacted with a lot of thought and passion. So I do highly recommend that you check out every single one because I guarantee you the summaries in each video do not do the stories justice. I promise you, Thank you, you will. They are very rewarding. They're very exciting. And during a time where we don't have any MCU movies, I promise you, Julius allows you to lay your imagination to rest and you can just enjoy and be invested in these stories. And they really are awesome and ambitious and so much fun. And I guarantee you, if you're a fan of Marvel and especially the MCU, you're going to love these stories because they truly are epic. The last one we did was Doomsday, which was probably the highlight out of all the pitches it really was a crazy story titled Doomsday. You have the main antagonist as Doom, Victor Von Doom, the greatest Marvel villain of all time. And I can't wait until we do see him on the big screen. Yeah, me neither. In the MCU, because it's going <laughs> to be better than Thanos. Uh, I'm, 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 we're calling it right yeah, now. We're calling it. I it, wouldn't it, be writing all this crap <laughs> if I didn't have high expectations for what is going to happen with Dr. Doom in this world, you know? Exactly. It, I, I think the MCU is going to be able to pull it off. A lot of people are saying, you know, how can you top off? How can you top Thanos? You know what I mean? But I, I definitely think the right character has the ability to do that. Mm-hmm. And the way that you utilize Victor Von Doom in the story definitely, I think, gives a great like segue to get thinkers, to get viewers to think, ah, this is this the right is character. Yeah. This is how you do it. And um, I'm definitely going to explain to you all how that can be possible. So Doomsday basically starts off with Victor Von Doom encountering Owatu, the Watcher. Mm-hmm. And this experience gives him new closure on what his purpose means. And basically the conversation goes down like this. The, uh, Owatu, the Watcher, basically tells him that Doom will destroy the fabric of reality. And only one person can save the multiverse. And that one person is Reed Richards the most brilliant man in the Marvel galaxy, to be honest, I will debate anybody to be honest. Reed Richards is the chosen one. And Dr. Doom gets this information as he has control of heralds and also Galactus as well. His heralds include like uh, Terax, Valeria, uh, Silver Surfer as well. And it's absolutely insane. Doom has all this control and he has one goal, which is to destroy earth and change reality. And bend it at his will. So what Reed Richards decides to do is that he tries to evacuate as many people as he can from planet Earth. Their goal is to evacuate everybody and try to head on to Mars. So as they're on their spaceships and stuff like that, we get great characters introduced in the story. Like Wolverine, like Blade. You know, you get to see Sam Wilson leading the Ultimates, which is really awesome. Ant-Man, Doctor Strange, you know, all these fantastic characters 
coming together with great and accurate character interactions. It's really, it just gets, you know, your blood flowing. It's fantastic. And, um, you know, so they try to take these Wakandan ship to Mars, you know, with the help of Black Panther. And you also get other characters that are opposed to what the heroes are trying to do, like Namor, who is, you know, just something else. An asshole. I hate Namor, man. (laughs) You made me hate Namor. I hope we never see Namor in the MCU <laughs> storyline, man. I, I hate him so much, man. I hate hey, him. Hey, Namor, you better but... stay home. <laughs> exactly. You better drown. You better drown, Namor. <laughs> but no, the way you use Namor is fairly accurate to how he would be in this kind of story. You, you could definitely imagine Namor with the amount of animosity that he has towards humans that he would soon call Dr. Doom my liege. You know what I mean? So that that was very awesome to see his character arc in the story and to see how he fits in and, and he how he plays as a foil to every to all the heroes as well. Um, and, you know, you also get great scenes with the heroes versus the villains as well, like Doctor Strange and and Doctor Doom. You know, you got that great scene where Doctor Strange says, open your mind, Doom. And it's just so fantastic. And I love how you also see Doctor Doom struggle in this story as well. I think there is a feeling of sympathy for him, especially when he if I believe correctly, he has that heart attack and stuff like that. And he's yeah. like, I'm dying and stuff like that. And, and Reed has this conflict of like, do I kill my friend? And I, I really enjoyed that part of the story as well. And yeah, I think it just ends on such a great climatic note, to be honest, you know, Sue is brainwashed by Namor becomes the queen of Atlantis, which is absolutely wild. You know, this whole story I think is about trying not to save, the world of Reed Richards, but saving the world of the people he cares about and also yeah. trying to avenge Ben Grimm. Yeah. You know, if you're wondering what happened to Ben Grimm, check out part three, you know, uh, which is it's messed up. What happened? Mind blowing as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, by the end of it, we get doom starting to change reality completely. Uh, and things are looking very bleak. Um, for example, the, the earth is engulfed by the sun and our world as we know it is completely destroyed and our heroes are on an unclear path to the unknown and doom gets to create the universe that he wants a new universe that is um you know limitless to his imagination and there's a, only a, a small group of survivors by the end of that story yep. including uh reed richards obviously valeria franklin his kids um that's right. Scott, yeah. he, T'Challa. He, free, he frees his kids. Um, they are no longer heralds. Yeah. Um, they are saved. And that's why, that's what I really like too, because Reed, very fixated on failure and uh, very stubborn in his idea that he cannot succeed, but his children, the future, the potential, remind him, Dad, you saved us. You can do this. You know, there's little hope left, but you're still here. So we got to keep on fighting. And yeah. I love that. Yeah, I love that. You know, I love, I love the focus on Reed Richards in these stories. You know, I feel like in the past twenty years, Reed Richards hasn't gotten the recognition that he's deserved in comics, cartoons, mm-hmm. and of course live action. But I think this, these pitches right here are exactly what diehard Marvel fans and I think Reed Richard fans have been looking for. They're all right here. You know, Julius puts him on a well, platter. Thank you. With his long arm. <laughs> with his arm. <laughs> like in the trailer for Fan Four Stick. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, and of course, 
They're fantastic. They're fantastic. And it leads us into our post credit scenes, which establishes a new universe. And we have a wanderer in space known as Kang the Conqueror, who finds what they consider the chosen one, which is a Reed Richards in complete stasis. Along with the other heroes who survived who are destined to help the world. Exactly. Fantastic. And that's where we are. That's where oh. we are in the doomsday. <laughs> well, thank you so much for, you know, summarizing like that. It, it really is very nice to hear that about work you did. You know, mm-hmm. for, I, I appreciate it. I want to give thanks to the people who have listened continuously to these stories, you know, because there have been comments, very nice comments from people who are like, hey, I really can't wait. This reminds me of that from the comics. This reminds me of this from the comics. And, you know, I can't wait to see this. I hope this is what it is. And that's very complimentary. But I think the number one person I have to thank is yourself, Angel, because you're you're from the very beginning. You've been part of this. You've you've listened. You've listened to me ramble and read this stuff. And (laughs) I I appreciate that, man. I yeah, of course. It's 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 nice to read it to someone rather than read it to a microphone. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, of course. You, like you and I have talked about how it's hard to do videos by ourselves because oh, we're man. just, you know. Tell the, me about it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just much more relieving to do it with someone else in the room or over the Zoom call, and uh, I I can't wait to hear what you think. And uh, you're right. It, in January, it would have been two years since this stuff began, which is insane. Yeah, really it's insane. Freaking wild, dude. And I think one of my favorite parts, too, besides just listening as well and, and following along this journey as you're creating, is to see viewers inspired as well to do their own thing, mm-hmm. you know, to write their own stuff and, and share it with us. I think that's really awesome as well. The, the fact that you have this ability to, you know, be so creative and pass it along to someone else. I mean, I think that's one of the beautiful tools of YouTube, you know, or yeah. whatever social media thing that we're using. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And especially if you just apply yourself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> apply yourself. <laughs> uh, one thing I want to bring up that I think I should bring up before we start is that obviously black panther um this is about the future of the 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 hypothetical what if future of these stories and uh, people who have listened have known that t'challa has had a very big part in these stories and obviously with chadwick boseman's death that no one saw coming obviously this was being written before anyone knew anything about his complications you know um when that happened, I was very conflicted about how I would approach this. Mm-hmm. He's not out of the story. He's still in it. I, I didn't want to disrespect the character by just saying like, oh, and he's gotten. I, I, I tried writing a part that would be honorable to the memory of that actor and, and what he left behind. And uh, yeah, I just keep that in mind. You know, it's not like trying to be like, you know, and then uh, everything's fine. Uh, it's not his death's not going to deter, deter my ideas you know it's mm-hmm. i wanted to honor you know what he had done with that role with this yeah. so it was actually kind of inspiring not that it's good that he died but it, it pushed my writing you know it's like okay i really gotta pay attention to what he's doing in this you know mm-hmm. I, yeah. I really gotta look over it again 
Yeah, I love that. Yeah. I mean, I think as an artist, you know, we all have responsibility to, um, you know, make sure that we get something right. And especially with tragedy, mm-hmm. you know, I really like to hear that you put some thought into it and thought like, okay, I can't, I, I got to get this right. And it's got to feel right. Otherwise it's not correct. You know? Yeah. And, and Chadwick Boseman's passing. I mean, it's like, I mean, how do you handle that? It's so hard because he was legend, legend, yeah. you know, he was King material and, you know, left something so beautiful behind for all generations, mm-hmm. um, for all people of color and stuff like that. So, you know, yeah. I can't wait to see how you fit them into the story and, you know, We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> I got it right here. There it is. <laughs> I don't know if you can see it. It's Secret Wars. <laughs> yes, sir. Look at that. Wow. So for those who don't know this story, it is going to be split up in two parts. This story is just too big. We're going to do two videos, this one and then another one. Uh, it's just this is the finale, the ideal finale for the Marvel Cinematic Universe, okay? So it had to, it couldn't just be one thing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. This has to be a legacy. We got to create a legacy here. So we're almost ready to go, but I got to show you one thing before we do it, all right? Okay. Here we go. See it? Woo-wee, look at that. Oh, yep. man. God, that is glorious. Look at that. Green's my favorite color, too. Mm. That's right. <laughs> I love that, man. It, oh, man. I this is going to be a thumbnail. I hope he gets spanked right now. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> I'm very, very intrigued to see what this new universe is going to be like. Me too. And I wrote it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That, that, is, that is beautiful. Well, thank you. Okay. All right, Angel. I think we're, I think we're good to go. Okay. Sounds good. So I got my uh, notepad ready, so I'm going to be taking <laughs> notes along the way as well. Oh Jesus Christ! All right, the monster of a, of a F. <laughs> okay. F Jesse. F. Tr- <laughs> oh man! Now we're gonna do our breaking pad impressions, like in that one video. Hey, Gomi. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, hold on, Captain Cook. That's a white boy's name. I told you, Alter. I told you. <laughs> <laughs> See, the problem, Walter, is you're not thinking fourth dimensionally. <laughs> All right, let's do this. You're taking time, bomb, Walter. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, watch Better Call Saul. All right. Okay. <laughs> Secret Wars. Like so many of our stories before, this one starts off quiet. So quiet, in fact, all you can hear is the ambiance of an alien meadow. One that's strange with purple-tinted fields. The clicking of different insects that scientists have yet to discover. Mainly because this is not Earth. It's the planet Corbin. With a binary sunset, a swarm of birds gliding with four sets of wings and a spaceship that's parked near an ever-flowing waterfall. Who are the passengers of this ship? Two gods. At the edge of the waterfall sits a couple whose roller coaster of a relationship has led them to a beautiful picnic on the outer edges of the galaxy. Opening his beer, Thor Odinson, god of thunder. He gulps Finally! It. <laughs> he gulps it as if his Viking heritage were threatened. However, he realizes that his date may be parched. He offers some to Jane Foster, the Lady Thor. Chuckling, she lets him finish it. 
On the radio, their pilot, a rock named Korg, informing, uh, Hey, Thors, we got a third base runa of a thunderstorm headed your way. I understand the irony. Meek and I wanted to let you know because you two look lovely. Like pretty woman lovely. I'll take care of it, Thor remarks, reaching for his weapon Stormbreaker, but he's cut off. No, I got it, Jane responds, grabbing her hammer, Mjolnir, which was adorably leaning on Stormbreaker. She uses the tool to whisk away the incoming clouds, as if they were worn flower petals. Thor jokes that she's finally getting good at this. A large part of energy for a thunderstorm comes from condensation, so all I had to do was separate the warm, moist air from the cold, dry hair, and I lost you, says Jane. No, no, not at all. Constipation, yes. Thor quickly responds. She laughs. They take a moment. Looking to the horizon, their day offers. Jane asks Thor if he thinks about the future. Do gods even do that? Do they need to? Does he ever think about their future? What he wants to share with Jane someday? Thor is unprepared for this discussion. It seems just like yesterday that Jane hit him with his car and found him in a desert. He was alone, arrogant, confused, unworthy. I never thought about a future, but it would probably look a lot like you, Thor says. Not just me, Jane responds, confusing Thor. What would you think about adding someone else to the picture? Korg, he asks. No. Do, do, do you mean Meek? No, I mean, <laughs> I mean someone else. Someone who's little and is ours. Jane implies heavily. As Thor remembers the Asgardian equivalent to the birds and the bees, all he can respond with is, Oh. Knowing he's nervous, Jane grabs Thor's hand, gives him a smile, and a kiss. In the ship, Korg and Meek notice on the radar another anomaly. Anomaly. One like the thunderstorm. The pile of rock informs the couple again. As they hear Korg's warning via radio, the two notice a giant shade blocking the two suns. Is this your constipation once again? asks Thor. <laughs> Thor and Jane look up, seeing the giant floating above them, standing tall in his purple celestial armor. Galactus looks down right at the lovebirds. The silhouetted titan is dark, but his eyes glow. From his pupils, two beams shoot straight at the spacecraft, destroying it, killing Thor's companions. Korg and Meek are no more. Thor screams, immediately grabbing Stormbreaker, and he jumps ready to thrust the axe right into Galactus's head. Before he gets the chance, he's shot away by cosmic energy right into the wreckage of the ship. His attacker? Nornrad, the Silver Surfer, who stands triumphantly on his newly made board. Jane uses Mjolnir to propel herself toward the surfer, but is knocked down by the might of Franklin Richards, who at this point was known as Terax, a stone-skinned warrior. She is then shot with fire by Franklin's sister, Valeria, who at this point was turned into Nova, a flying woman engulfed in stolen flames. Their brother and sister Duel pin Foster down, keeping her from escaping. Thor gets up, demanding to know who their enemies are. I can answer that, says a new voice from above. I just hope you'll love the answer. Flying down to Thor is a man with newfound power, omnipotence to a degree that Thor hasn't faced before. Not since the dreadful Thanos. This man, draped in a green cloak and metal armor, including a face mask and a green hood, is the master of these attackers. His name is Dr. Victor Von Doom. 
Thor asks if Doom knows who he is and how bad of a mistake he just made. Oh, I know, Doom replies. You're the god. Or at least you were. I just got back. Got back? asks Thor. It's a long story. Love, revenge, betrayal, surprises, me, him. Doom chuckles. If you know who I am, then you know who I'm with, Thor threatens. As strongest Avenger, I will bring the weight of the Earth down upon you. Doom interrupts. Oh yes, Earth. My home away from death. We're actually on our way there right now to meet some of your friends. Funny thing is, by the end of my visit, I will be the Avenger. Having enough, Thor swings the axe at Doom, but it's not enough. Doom catches the blade with his hand, sustaining no damage. He slaps Thor with the might that forces him to the ground. Jane, seeing this, summons lightning that pushes Terax and Nova off her. She charges towards Victor, but at the last second, Thor uses his weapon not to attack, but to save. He summons the Bifrost, an endless light of different colors to teleport Jane into the endless cosmos, into safety, until she's finally found. Victor takes note of Thor's selfless act, saying that he needs someone like that on his side. He knocks Thor unconscious, telling Terax to bring his body to the corrupted Nova's fleet. They'll fix him after the Earth is destroyed. The Silver Surfer asks his master, If you're gonna bring him to our side, why not do it now? Why not lead the assault on Earth? Victor chuckles behind his mask. It's Doomsday, Norrin. This story's not about Thor coming back. It's about me proving my point. Cut to black. Marvel Studios intro. Wow. This is where we'd be doing this right now. <laughs> Seeing that intro. <clears throat> 15 years later. Bruh. And as it was before, it's quiet once again. This time, it's sunrise in an eloquent bedroom made for royalty. Out of the bed gets up a king, a god, Victor Von Doom once again. Hiding his burnt face, he quickly applies his armor and dresses it in a pure white cloak. Dressed, he approaches a veranda high above the ground, his ground. He meets his country of Doomstadt and waves to his followers below. Victor's personal computing system, Norton L, akin to Asuri or Alexa, informs his majesty. They're waiting for you, sir. Also... Her Majesty wished me to inform you that her and the children will be departing swiftly after the meeting. Doom takes a deep breath behind the mask and goes to greet the day. Now we're in a dark conference room, somewhere deep in this palace of doom. A conference table as well, where Victor sits patiently. His guests, however, aren't as civil. His wife, Wanda Von Doom, the Scarlet Witch, and Namor, the King of Atlantis. Where are they? I would never allow such disrespect to my throne, demands the submariner. Submariner. Do you believe I do, my friend? Asks Doom. This question silence is the Atlantean, knowing that debate very well. It is becoming problematic, dear, Wanda tells Victor. Before another word could be said, in the room, a portal of mystic propriety opens, glowing a yellowish-orange. Out of it comes Doom's personal sheriff of Agamotto. Baron Mordo. He apologizes to Doom, saying that the two behind him can be immensely difficult. Well, you know what they say about stars, says a voice from behind. 
that egocentric voice belonging to Mr. Quentin Beck, a.k.a. Mysterio. You shouldn't give him dressing rooms. <laughs> Sleazy as usual, he struts to his seat, eyeing Wanda right in front of Victor with no shame. Behave, Beck, says the second voice from the portal. This man, a politician, a mayor, and one with a tint of green in his eye. It's Mayor Norman Osborne, played by Martin Cove. You don't shit where you eat. Now, now that they're all gathered, they can get down to business. But wait, one chair is still empty. The extra large one. Namor asks where the maestro is, and Doom replies that he's busy with a territorial dispute in the Savage Land. Ah, yes. I almost so I'm almost sorry we didn't drop the Wakandans off there, Namor jokes. Mysterio asks why they would, and he tells them. It's literally called the Savage Land. <laughs> Wanda tells them not to joke like that. They're people, still. Namor mocks the witch. Oh, I would expect nothing less from the savior, quote-unquote, of mutant kind. Tell me, do you feel better than me because it took you one sentence to show you how disgusted you are of our business? Or is your hypocrisy in the way? That's enough, inter interrupts Mordo. You are here to listen to the word of doom not to bicker. Thanking Mordo, Doom moves on. The AI Norton L pulls up a holographic image of the world. It looks like our Earth, but with continents in different shapes, countries that are small, surrounded by barren wastelands. Walls have been put up, separating these different territories. Doom informs them that in the lower hemisphere, a good chunk of land that was supposed to be assimilated into Wanda's country, the House of M, wasn't appropriated due to a lack of soldiers and high zombie count. Lack of mutants? How sad, teases Namor. Doom tells him that he'll be lending some Atlantean support to assist the takeover, and begrudgingly, he agrees. Victor asks Beck how the reprogramming is going. <laughs> Fantastic, he replies. Our schools are learning your history. I, <laughs> I mean, uh, the history of our world. Your conquests, your sacrifices for us all. I have a great lecture coming up at a university in New Xandar. The people will believe and remember however you deem, sire. Doom is pleased with Beck, however, with Osborne, it's a different story. He asked why Norman hasn't quelled the protests within his territory. When Victor was rebuilding the world after he destroyed Earth, he found Norman, a penniless conman whose son hated him. He gave him the chance to prove his worth and rebuilt New York City as an investment. Why, Mr. Mayor, says Doom, why haven't you held up your end of the bargain? Norman is sitting, calm, collected, staring at Doom with an indigenous grin. We're coming up with a new strategy, inspired by Quentin's uh, sense of flair. People like theatrics, Biggie. We're going to give it to them, the fine citizens of New York, and you'll see. We'll have them right where we want them. The two stare at each other until Doom ends the meeting. Getting up, Norman adds, By the way, I'm surprised by you. Throwing in your lot with an AI, considering what happened to your home those years ago. What was the name? Ah, Sokovia. Behind his mask, Doom grits his teeth, and Mordo opens the portals again, each of the visitors' respective homes. The sheriff leaves the check on his patrol, uh, leaves to check on his patrol, but right before, he tells his king that the Nova Squadron has a report for him via hollow meeting. Also, the plans for Project Renewal are being drawn up. Doom and Wanda are now alone. The king and queen walk through their halls, 
where Doom rants about Osborne's disrespect. He calms down due to Wanda's soothing presence. She asks him if he thought about her request. She knows it's a lot, but considering that Doom has the power of a god, and plus he created a whole planet, what she wishes shouldn't be too big of a leap. But what exactly was her request? A resurrection. Actually, two. Her brother, Pietro Maximoff, aka Quicksilver, and someone she had just learned about, her real father, Eric Lencher, aka Magneto. I need my family together again, she tells him. What do you mean? asked Victor. We are together. We're about to see the boys. Wanda tells him that he's not around. He's still calling them boys when they're young men now. Even mentally, her and Victor aren't together, and Doom asks what that means. She asks him, does he ever regret what they did all those years ago? Tricking humanity, lying to them ever since? She needs to know that what they did was worth something real. At that moment, a zipping noise passes them both once, twice, and three times. It's a teenage boy with white hair and super speed, ironically named Speed, catching up to his brother, another teen, dressed like a young warlock. His name is Wakan, the children of Victor and Wanda Von Doom. I told you I'd beat you in a race. I don't even know why you challenged me, Mock Speed. A race, not a cheat, reaffirms Wakan. Speed tells him to get over it and that he saw that little magic that Wakan was trying to pull. Using a spell to tie his laces together? Psst, bullshit. The boys hug their father, asking if he's going to come with them to their home at the House of M. Victor was under the impression that they were going to stay in the palace. He asks them to sense they make him feel stronger. Wanda tells him that they have school at the house. Victor is disappointed. He's not going to see his boys for a while. They say goodbye, and Wanda does as well. But her last question, Victor, what is Project Renewal? Doom says that it's highly classified. The family leaves, and Victor is alone. Distracting himself, he contacts Nova, Commander Richard Ryder, for a report on their orbital borders. Up in space, above Doom's planet, a Nova battalion surrounds, similarly to the rings of Saturn. In his command ship, Richard Ryder instructs different Nova soldiers along with Skrull and Kree. It's an alliance forced by the belief of Doom. Ryder informs Doom that there hasn't been any anomalies of note, but he will notify him at the sighting of anything odd. The call ends. Outside of the vessel, and I mean right outside the ship's window in space, peeking into Ryder's bridge is a cosmonaut, a young explorer in a purple and green spacesuit with a blue helmet. With mag magnetic boots, he clings onto the outside of the hull, asking his radio, are you sure it's going to be here? On the, end, on the other end, a familiar voice says, You're the history major, you tell me. On his wrist computer, the traveler receives a notification that reads, Spatial irregularity detected. Quadrants sent. If you get the notice, the young man says, looking back to Ryder, they definitely did. And he's right. Ryder's Novas get a notice about the same spatial irregularity. However, the purple and green traveler from outside uses a remote hacking device to disrupt their transmission. Their computers fail, which pleases the stranger. His boots turn from magnetic to a means of propulsion. He flies away from the battalion, heading into what looks like the middle of space. That is until he finds his prize, an oddly egg-shaped 
my mirror vessel. It's frosted due to the temperature of space. The traveler wipes the hall so he can get a peek of what's inside. I found him, says the traveler. Can you hear me? I found the one. His radio, his radio responds. Loud and clear, Kang. You're good for re-entry. The stranger goes by Kang, and one of the many people he found inside the ship is Reed Richards of the Fantastic Four. Getting further from the Nova Battalion with finesse, Kang manages to escort the ship to the dark side of the moon. On that side, Kang's dingy ship. The cargo doors open, and in they go. Meeting Kang is his security consultant, the new Hawkeye, Kate Bishop, and his pilot, who rolls up to the cargo bay in a wheelchair. It's an older Colonel James Rhodes, the former war machine. We cut to Kang, finally able to crack the hull of the ship. Through the opening, steam. Kang takes his helmet off, showing his face, and he's a teenager, around Kate's age. Out of the ship falls Reed, right into the explorer's arms. He's barely regaining consciousness, with his arms sliding on the ground since he has the power to stretch his skin. The words that he manages to get out? How long has it been? Too long, says Rhodey. Reed recognizes him, now with a beard, disabled, with years added to his face. He's shocked, asking if the others are okay. Rhodes tells him to sit down, for he might go into shock. At that moment, the sound of other voices can be heard from the inside of the mirror capsule. It's the sound of a young girl calling for her dad. It's Valeria, but she's not on fire anymore. She tells her dad, Reed, that Franklin is unconscious and that she needs his help. Together, Reed and Kang bring down Franklin, and they try to wake him up. Uh, I don't want to go to school, Franklin says, barely awake. After him, the others from the shuttle start to awaken and are brought down. Cassie Lang, the daughter of the late Scott Lang, Ant-Man, makes her wait down, disoriented, followed by Carol Danvers, a.k.a. Captain Marvel. Where the hell did we end up, she asks. Behind those two, T'Challa, the Black Panther, comes out, helping the still-blind Scott Summers, a.k.a. Cyclops. Somewhere that smells like a laundromat, the X-Men scoffs. Behind those two, Sam Wilson, the latest Captain America, comes out, shield on back, with the life model decoy of Agent Phil Coulson, who was deactivated during the trip. We got a man down, he yells. Kang no tells them that they can revive Coulson with some tools in the garage. Down with Valeria, Franklin wakes up, who notices that he's not made of stone anymore. He asks his dad when they are, and Reed tells him that their host will probably know that better than they. Wilson sees Rhodey in the chair, noticing the gray in his beard and the age on his face. Start from the beginning. Later, our heroes are fed by Rhodey. Well, he mentions that him and the others thought they were all killed. Fat chance, though. To the side, Kang is using his tools to restart Coulson's positronic brain. The survivors of Doomsday are asked, what's the last thing that they remember? And Cassie starts, saying that she was on one of the Herbie shuttles, escorting humanity from Earth to Mars, where Doom took over the communications and showed the world's population of Earth's destruction, including the death of her father, Ant-Man. He blamed it all on Reed. Franklin and Valeria chime in, saying that Doom took control of them, turning the siblings into these superpowered heralds of death. Carol interrupts, saying that she fought one of the heralds. She describes him as one of those silver-coated freaks with a certain board. Valeria tells her to shut up. That's her husband she's talking about. Danvers informs her that her husband knocked Carol's ask all the way from New York to Mount Fuji, 
Nice taste in men, by the way. Valeria wants to defend Norrin further, for he's someone who's filled with guilt and lost purpose, and Doom exploited that. But she is calmed down by Franklin. They move on. What else happened? Frank says that some creepy fish guy kidnapped their mom, Susan Storm. Reed is quiet, ashamed. Wilson tells them that they lost New York, and Fury died, for real this time. Scott tells them Namor blinded him, and T'Challa says after that, that, that bastard flooded Wakanda. His people didn't make it. Well, that's not entirely true, your highness, Kang informs. Reed turns to the young man, asking who he is. How did he find them all, floating aimlessly in space? Still concentrated on Coulson, Kang tells them that the long story short is he's an aspiring archaeologist, and once he found out that the history he kept digging up didn't fit with the history everyone's been taught all these years, he dug further and further, finding items from a world long past, technology that wasn't of his time. He found Kamartage scrolls from old sorcerers, now outlawed, that dis uh, depicted a ship made of mirrors that would hold the key to freeing the world and possibly saving the universe. He learned that the same vessel would be coming here and now, so that's when he got together with Rhodey, and they went looking. So what exactly is the history everyone's been taught? The answer is why Reed was told to sit down. He turns on a different TV monitor uh, station with news reports from the world below. Headlines stating, Doom saves the world once again. Namor opens Atlantis for business. House of M, mutant safe haven. God bless Doom. These heroes have been in stasis for 15 years, and during that time, Dr. Doom and his little cabal decided to remake the world in their image. The heroes see maps of the planet with different pieces of territory. On the Western Hemisphere, the governing, the governing country of Doomstadt, where Victor himself resides. It's separated by a sea and Atlantean navy. Across the ocean, the shores of the other continent lead to the House of M, ruled by Wanda Maximoff the home of mutants. In between both countries, Atlantis sits, obviously ran by Namor. To the east of the House of M, a desert called the Savage Land, and even further than that, New Manhattan, a near-perfect recreation of New York City, ran by Mayor Norman Osborne. All these places are divided by giant stone walls, keeping bandits, zombies, and other creatures out. T'Challa asks Kane what he meant when he implied that the Wakandans survived. Where are they? In response, Kang explains that he ha has connections to an underground network, something of a resistance. He's heard that the Wakandans have been taken to Atlantis, Atlantis as workers. Workers? asks T'Challa. Well, they're not really workers. They don't have much of a choice, Kang tells him. The Black Panther's heart breaks, and his rage rises. He tells Kang to gather his resistance right now. They have to free them, and he will personally take off the heads of Namor and Doom. T'Challa's allies tell him to take a minute and calm down, but there isn't any time for that. Those sadists took their world, his home, and destroyed it. Then they took his people, his wife Storm, and turned them into slaves. No minute is available. Scott reminds him that he's also in the same spot as he. The mutants are under Wanda's control, and he doesn't know where his wife Jean Grey or their daughter Hope are. Only difference is, he's actually blind, so why don't they take a minute? 
as the room grows louder with debate regarding manpower, doom's power, practicality, Reed sits with his head down, twiddling his thumbs. He says out loud that none of it matters. This quiets down the whole room. None of it matters anymore, Reed continues. They won, and they won't stop winning. Franklin comes up, saying, that's not true. The Watcher told him in Doom that Reed was the one who was going to save the multiverse. That's destiny. But Reed asks, what if destiny was just a lie because the Watcher didn't want to see Doom rise up to power? What if it was just an extra incentive to get them to fight but ultimately lose? And how would they even fight? Do these people know what they're actually up against? T'Challa says that they will beat Doom as they've beat anyone else in the past. But that's just it, Reed says. He's not like anyone else. Do you even understand how he beat us? Here's a hint. He could have bruised us or not, and he still would have won. Wilson chimes in, saying that Doom won by convincing the people that they were actually the bad guys. Exactly, says Reed. This is a theocracy, a culture where people believe that Victor Von Doom is God. We would not be looked at as heroes. We would be looked at as invaders. Even if we did beat him, we wouldn't be saving the day. Cassie says that if they told them the truth, they'd be able to convince the world of what Doom has done. King responds saying that the people are compelled to believe Doom through media, their jobs, and their education. The belief would have to come from within. I can help with that, says the now rebooted Phil Coulson. My positronic brain stored recorded footage of that day. We just need a big enough screen. Scott Summers tells Reed that it's not impossible. It's just hard. They can do this. Carol adds that they owe it to the people. Richards is terrified and doubtful, but he considers saying that they would have to spread through the world, learn it, understand the people, and create a rumor, an idea that would spread. The idea that Doom is not God, but a fraud, and that this resistance will know more. Once that rumor is set, they'll have to gain control of the main channels of communication, which apparently connect through Atlantis to New Manhattan. That's when Kang protests. <laughs> Hold on a second. I'm just a consultant. At best, I don't even have any real ties to the resistance. Kate interrupts him. Bullshit. You just don't want to see your parents again. They kind of run the underground. It's humanitarian work, not an army, he says. But when Kate gives up him, uh, him the look, Kang is embarrassed and he reluctantly agrees. Sam comes up to him saying, humanitarian or not, they'll need all the help they can get. Uh, Reed looks to Valeria and Franklin, asking if they're sure they want to do this. They tell him that they have to, for their mom, for Uncle Johnny and Aunt Alicia. Hearing this, Kang comes up. Right, about that. There's something I should probably tell you. But before he can continue, the alarm raises. Their ship has been detected by a Nova Brigade. Rhodey rushes to the cockpit to fly them away. And everyone else fastens their seatbelts. Kate takes on the weapon system and starts to fire at incoming Novas. As the soldiers gain to the ship, Carol notices that joining the Novas are Skrulls and Kree. She tells Kang to open a window so she can go out there and talk to them. She has rapport with those factions. Even though he thinks it's a terrible idea, he agrees and shoots her from the cargo bay to the outside. Uh, time to make our tribal plans, says King, as he pulls out a holographic hug system, designating his escape pods from different areas to the world. You said we need to spread out, right? He says to Reed. 
Outside the ship, Carol flies toward the incoming vessels. She yells at them, demanding to know why they would align themselves with Dune. Calling her a heretic, the Novas, Kree, and Skrull fire upon Captain Marvel, who takes all the shots and fires back. Back in the ship, Kang is almost done with the escape pods. In the pods themselves, they will be provided with mission statements and maps of the local area. It's a last minute plan, but it'll have to do. He tells them all to get inside and tells Kate that she's coming with him and Cassie. T'Challa and Scott head for the same one. Reed, Val, and Frank head for the same one, as does Sam and Coulson. But before they leave, Kang almost forgot. He pulls an especially important USB drive from his main computer. They cannot forget that. Escape pod one with T'Challa and Scott shoot out. Their destination, the house of them. Escape pod two with Coulson and Sam and Escape Pod 3 with Reed and the kids are about to shoot out, but the latch is hit by Nova's blast. Those ones can't escape. Kate tells Kang that they have to leave, but what about the rest? Rhodey tells him that, through the comms, he's a damn good pilot, and he'll get Reed and the rest to safety. Just send the coordinates. Kang rushes to Rhodey and gives him the thumb drive, telling him that he knows how important it is to their mission. Make sure it gets to New Manhattan. Yes, sir, he says. Kang gets back to the pod, but before him and the girls leave, Reed asks him what he had to tell him. Kang responds, Well, from what I hear about you, you like surprises. So survive this and you'll find out. The escape pod shoots and Kang, Kate, and Cassie are on their way. Rhodey, still piloting, radios Carol, saying that they need a big distraction to get away. Plus, Kang and the girls could use some cover. Outside, Carol sees this escape pod being fired upon. With her power, Captain Marvel flashes a giant light, blinding the Nova, Skrull, and Kree ships momentarily. Rhodey's escape ship, or ship escapes headed to New Manhattan, and Danvers escorts Kang's pod to the Savage Land. On the, ship, on the command ship, Ryder notices the escape and orders an immediate notification to the Palace of Doomstone. We cut to a construction area where zombies are being cut down by Atlantean soldiers. Walking casually through the area is Wanda, joined by Namor. They are right outside the halls and walls of the House of M, a pitiful excuse for a palace, as described by the King of Atlantis. The more he mocks, the more Wanda considers using her access to magic to zip his mouth shut. But she doesn't, because believe it or not, Namor's helped her get rid of potential threats to her power in the past, and Namor loves to hold these actions over her. With the last zombie killed, the area is now under the jurisdiction of the house. Namor is leaving back to Atlantis, right? Wrong. Wanda needs him for a couple more, quote-unquote, threats. They make their way within the city, where few mutant civili civilians, and even those who lost their powers because of Wanda all those years ago, are living it up. Cafes on different corners, mailmen, libraries, atop the walls, giant sentinel robots, guarding and blasting incoming hordes of zombies. In the middle of it all, a city square with a tall statue of Quicksilver and Magneto. Wanda and Namor run into Wakandan Speed, who found something on their uh, way home. A yo-yo that's purple and green, belonging to Wanda. She takes it away, quickly, remembering what it is and the shame surrounding the object. For if you fail to remember, all those years ago, when she decided to help Doctor Doom, Wanda turned her then-husband, the Vision, into this little toy. The kids are puzzled by their mother's sudden angst, but they let it go, and they head home. Wanda and Namor continue their way. Watching them from a distance is a mutant dressed inconspicuously, 
He goes by the name Warpath. He's about to follow them further until he's contacted over the radio by an ally saying that they just picked up a crashed escape pod. Two strangers came out of it, but one of them looks a lot like a former X-Man. He heads over immediately. Outside of the walls of New Xandar, Rhodey lands the ship in a perfect hiding spot. You wanted a school, right, Reed? New Xandar has the biggest university on the planet. Plus, they got a special guest speaker. This is where I'm dropping you off, says Rhodes. Wilson's confused. Dropping us off. Where are you going? Rhodey pulls up the images of New Manhattan. Protests, riots, and chaos. This guy Osborne, he's been creating a mess out of this city. There's an arm of the resistance stationed there, called the Patriots, fighting back as much as they can. I have to go there. Give them this thumb drive, says the war machine. Sam offers his assistance, as does Coulson. Rhodes could use some help, you know, with the whole non-walking thing. Rhodey is thankful and says that this might be a good chance at a reunion. Exactly. How are you going to leave Captain America out of the Patriots, jokes Wilson. They leave Reed, Val, and Frank, wishing them luck. The three Richards make their way through the giant walls, sneaking as well as they can, passing Nova guards. They manage to actually blend in the environment. There are merchants, different alien families walking down the arts district. Franklin manages to stray away from the other two by this one shifty salesman. You, uh, yes, uh, you. You look like a, mm, yes, mm, tired, strapping young boy. Uh, adventure is, uh, under your belt, says the eccentric man. And, uh, you are, says Franklin. Uh, many names, billions of years, uh, but around here I go by the Grandmaster. This is my brother's shop, Collector's Collection. It's the ever flamboyant Grandmaster who is joined by his brother, the Collector, who tells him he's as good for his sales as one of those inflatable long-armed balloon men. You know, uh, those are based off of me, says the Collector. Quickly, Reed grabs Franklin away from the con man, saying that they don't want anything, they're not interested, and they have to be on their way. They leave the two to continue their intergalactic bickering. In the shop section, the three Richards approach an unsuspecting couple who are deciding which alien chair would look better in the living room. Reed asks the husband if they know which way the university is. The husband says, University? Uh, wow. Uh, okay. I uh, never thought I would actually ever have to know. His green wife, impatient with him, interrupts. It's down the road for another three miles. Reed replies, Thank you, Mr. and Mrs. Starlord, says the husband, Peter Quell. Gamora, the wife, smacks him up the head side and corrects him. Mr. and Mrs. Quill. The family separate, but not before Franklin tells Peter that he likes his name better. The man-child smiles with content. The Richards family heads down the road for another three miles. Away in the dangers of the Savage Land, a wasteland resides, with dunes bearing destroyed homes and eroded canyons and decayed bodies. Picking at these bodies aren't vultures, but prehistoric pterodactyls. Seeing this, Cassie Lang is shocked, saying, Dinosaurs! Of course there would be dinosaurs. Lang Carroll, eh, Kang, and Kate keep moving further away from the giant birds and their cra crashed escape pod. Their destination is down deep in the caves and hollows of a canyon called the Great Impact. As they make their way, Kate, who was up ahead scouting, tells them that there's some danger ahead. 
Behind a couple of boulders, King, Carol, and Cassie, and Kate see a squad of soldiers that are beating down on a bunch of zombies with their bare fists. These soldiers are odd, mutated, and angry. It's a squad of men that look like the Hulk. Carol and Cassie ask what happened to them. Well, in these parts, the Maestro's men are injected with a defunct super soldier serum. Kate asks King if the Maestro's around. Do you think his midget is? King tells her that this isn't the time for revenge. They have to evade them. She asks, what if they can use these guys to finally find the maestro's hideout? They'll finally have the upper hand on him. As they continue to watch from what's thought to be a safe distance, they are snuck up upon. A young man, also hulked out, but different, with a scaly arm and blondish hair. He aims his laser at them nervously, telling them to freeze, and they do. His hands are shaking, for he has never captured anyone before. Kang is kind to him, saying that they don't want to fight. They just want a safe passage to their families. He asks the soldier's name, and the soldier goes by Hulkling. You don't seem like a stone-cold killer to me, Hulkling. Just put the gun down. It's okay, Kang persuades. I don't want to get in any trouble with my dad. I don't like him when he's angry. Hulkling responds shakily. But before the encounter becomes violent, common sense prevails. Hulkling puts down the gun, and the crew of heroes make their way to escape. But as they sneak past the other hulks, they are noticed by the sound of unnatural rock movement. They get in a bout where Carol and Kang fights most of it. Kate and Cassie take cover, where Bishop uses her bow and arrow. Hawkeye asks Lang why she isn't helping, but Cass she's not much of a fighter. Bishop says, then what exactly is the good of you right now? Carol takes down the Hulk agents and with ease. That is until she's hit from behind by Hulkling's aunt, Jennifer Walters, the She-Hulk. Carol vaguely recognizes her, but it's not enough. She's laid down by the raw strength of Walters. She's punched right in the face over and over and over again. Kang gets knocked back towards his allies. He tells Kate that they're going to be overrun with Hulk soon. Even with Captain Marvel, they won't be able to hold up. They need a distraction and Kang's the one who has to make it back to the Resistance. He has to bring Cassie with him. She's not ready for this. Kate offers to stay behind to be captured. And of course, Kang protests, but it only makes sense. She'll find out where the Maestro holds up, and with the help of Danvers, they'll bring it down from the inside. Reluctantly, he agrees, but he tells her not to make this about getting even with Patch. She agrees and shoots an arrow that covers their escape. Walter stops the assault on Danvers for a moment, looking up to see Kate Bishop surrendering. Bishop winks to Danvers below. The two surrender to the Hulks. Hulkling comes up, holding up appearances, and is even made fun of by the others for hiding during the action. Jennifer tells the rest to shut up, checking on Hulkling to see if he's okay. She actually does care for him. And with that, the prisoners are taken away by the Hulks. In the canyon, King and Cassie make their way back to the Haven. The deeper they go, they find the path. Eventually, they come across the two guards that, that point their rifles at them. The main guard recognizes King, but more importantly, she recognizes Cassie. She takes off her helmet, and the guard is Hope Van Dyne, the former Wasp. The two hug tighter than ever before. Their memories of Scott, Hank, and their family bring them together. Cassie asks where Janet is, but Hope remains silent. Instead of answering, she guides the teens deeper into the resistance. 
We see the refugees of Asgardians, different types of outlawed aliens, humans, and inhumans. We see a gang of runaway teenagers with a pet velociraptor. Kang notices that they're barely surviving, and Hope tells him it's because he left. His parents have been too busy worrying about their runaway son rather than the well-being of the last truly free part of humanity. Where are Kang's parents? They're at the very end of the underground valley. Slowly, he goes to them alone, nervous as he takes off his helmet. He goes up to them saying that they have to be very good with him because he has very good news that might end up being very bad news. Richards is back. We cut back to Carol and Kate, locked up, being driven to the outlands of the Maestro. It's a polluted area with fallen helicarriers instead of mountains. They're brought to a great opening of machinery, where deep inside, an army of different hulkish men, doing the drills of destruction, lifting old trucks and using different metal to create weapons, in charge of the hands-on Hulk army, the Red Hulk, who was once General Thaddeus Ross. The Red Hulk looks at their new prisoners and directs them to the maestro's right-hand man, this assistant, the one Kate Bishop has been searching for for years. He's a short, former mutant with a cigar in his mouth and a patch over his eye. He goes by Patch, but he was once known as Logan Howlett, Wolverine. Patch dis directs Carol and Kate to the interrogation rooms. The big guy will want to know what they know. It's nighttime at the House of M, and atop the walls, the Sentinels remain vigilant. Spotlights emanating from their eyes, looking for potential threats beyond the border wall. Sneaking past notice, Warpath meets with other undercover mutants known as the Morlocks, his followers. The Collective takes their leader to the crashed escape pod he was notified of, and he meets Scott Summers and T'Challa. Warpath, funny enough, recognizes Scott, except he wasn't blind. From years and years ago in the story X-Men Legacy, Scott fought alongside Warpath's older brother, John Thunderbird Proudstar. Warpath reintroduces himself as James, to mutant kind's former leader. It's good to see you again, James. Well, you know what I mean, Scott says. Warpath tells them that he knows the perfect place for them to hide. We cut to the inside of the House of M, where James leads Scott and T'Challa through the city. Summers hears the sounds of couples taking nightly strolls, young mutants playing, and families eating dinner. He asks James how the mutants can remain so complacent. I'd like to tell you they're scared, says Warpath, but the truth is they're comfortable. They're finally not being hunted or persecuted. We've reached a paradise of sorts. T'Challa asks how they can ignore what's happening right outside their walls. Why don't they rise up? Warpath tells him that it's easy to let things slip when you're brainwashed into believing that you were chosen to be safe. The three reach safety, and it's a little apartment. Inconspicuous and even charming. They knock and open the door to a teenage girl. She recognizes Warpath and lets him in quickly, asking where he's been. Sitting Scott down, T'Challa wants to know who the girl is. My name's Hope. Who the hell are you? Scott takes a moment. Did he hear correctly? That's right. Her name is Hope Rachel Summers, his daughter. From the other room, her mother comes in, asking who's in the living room. That is until she sees. Scott? She asks. Summer responds. Jean? Is that you? And it is. It's Jean Grey, Scott's wife. The two hug for what seems to be forever. Hope is confused. Who's the crip? She tells Jean that... 
or Jean tells her that it's him and she has to take a minute. She doesn't even recognize her father. Quickly, Jean goes to her phone, calling some neighbors, telling him, them to get there immediately. Jean asks what happened to his eyes, but that's a long story. They need to take this moment. Entering the apartment at, are the neighbors, but also some familiar faces. It's Hank McCoy, formerly Beast, Warren Warrington, formerly Angel, and Bobby Drake, formerly the Iceman, all without their powers, all together. They embrace as if it were the good old days. T'Challa asks Jean if Storm is there, hoping for some good news. But Jean apologizes because she hasn't seen Aurora in years. Warpath steps up, telling him that he knows where she is, where the mutants still with their powers are. They have to go to Atlantis. It's evening in New Zandar, where Reed and his children have found the university. Some late classes about physics, geology, and history are being taught. You'd imagine it an oasis for enlightenment and commerce, but truthfully, it's only an arm's length more civil than the world outside. With Nova guards patrolling the campus, checking in on different students' books and their conversations, not with an iron fist, but with a warm smile, these soldiers say things to their students such as, how are you liking the campus? You wouldn't want to live in a world without doom, would you? Isn't it amazing how considerate he is, making a school of this quality? Reed notices that even teachers aren't immune to this treatment. One in the distance named Professor Adam Brashear, a black man with a high intellect, being approached by these same Novas. The professor's discomfort is overt, and once he's finally let go by these men, Reed approaches him from one educator to another. He asks what's really going on at the school. Under his breath, the professor tells him that they're given scripts, talking points, areas that are approved to teach. If a professor goes beyond the zone of discomfort, they're never seen or heard from again. They can't create a union or even ask for the funding of their own university. Reed asks why no one has stood up. Why hasn't Brashear himself? Because, Professor Richards, says Brashear, at this school, they're not looking for innovators or artists. Don't you think I want to stand up every day being something of a hero? I'm teaching fear instead. Reed can only empathize, and he asks the teacher where he can find a class regarding the history of the world in Doom. Brashear has something better than a class, and he directs Reed and his kids to the school's main auditorium. Tonight, a lecture by Quentin Beck. Why Doom chose us. Reed thanks Adam and wishes him luck, but before that, he tells him something important. If you want to be a hero, Professor, maybe you should start by asking... Why do we believe Doom to be God? Brashear is left speechless and inspired. The three Richards enter the hall for the main event. The seats are filled. The hall is dark and smoke fills the stage. Lifting music begins as does a voiceover by Beck. His monologue is of deep appreciation towards Doom. As Mysterio appears on stage, the crowd cheers and Reed, Val, and Frank look around the students. Concerned. With Beck's binary augmented retroframing technology, or BARF, he holograms Doom, creating the world in the palm of his hand. We see then the images of him creating people, feeding children, shaking the hands of his followers. There is nothing before or after. There is no safety or discomfort. There is no love or hate without Doom, Beck says. He's fought for us time and time again. A holographic image of him holding the god of mischief, Loki, in his bare hands. 
He single-handedly saved New Manhattan from the Chitauri invasion, led by the evil Loki. Beck continues. Another image of Doom, but this time, he's turning the robot menace Ultron into scrap. When Ultron destroyed what we now call the Savage Land, Doom gave us justice by turning his metal into a resource that we all benefit from with our modern technology. Another image of Victor putting his hand directly through the chest of Thanos. And when the alien invader Thanos came spouting nonsense regarding limited resources, he tried to destroy our way of life. And we all know the greatest invader of all, the one who destroyed the world we knew before, that accursed Richards. A giant picture of Reed Richards appears on stage, met with tremendous boos. The family is shocked, and quickly, with his power of manipulating his skin, he shapes his face to look like someone else. Who'd defend us but Doom? Quentin says. Certainly not his traitorous former first hand. Bring him out. At that moment, Beck's assistants bring out a puppet. When the audience sees this doll, they boo and throw food at him. For this puppet was once Sorcerer Supreme, Dr. Stephen Strange. His skin now wood, his joints attached to strings. He can barely move his head, so he hangs it down. Dr. Strange here tried to take the power of doom for himself, so our Lord turned Stephen into exactly what he is, a puppet reaching for his own strings. The audience laughs, cheers, and Stephen is thrown down right on the stage floor. Reed is heartbroken when he sees his friend this way. The audience rises around him, applauding the presentation. He sits still with water from his eyes. The presentation ends, the stage clears, and Richards decides to head backstage. Valeria and Franklin wait outside the hall while Reed uses his powers of stretching up to the second story. That's where he sees Quentin Beck popping a beer, congratulating himself for another great show. At that moment, his agent calls him, telling him about a technical problem regarding their next appearance. He leaves quickly, in a rage, firing plenty of stagehands on the way. <laughs> Richard sneaks into his dressing room, and he looks around. That's when he hears a very weak voice. Reed. To his left sits the puppet of Strange. Reed is still in shock when he looks at his friend, apologizing profusely. He has to get Stephen out of there. They need the Sorcerer Supreme. But that's when Strange tells him he's not Supreme anymore. The title was taken from him long ago, at the beginning of Doom's world. Stephen was a prisoner of Doom. Victor broke his hands, tortured him, until he would help him access the multiverse. Reed is confused. Why couldn't Doom access the multiverse himself if he has the power of a god? It's because he doesn't anymore. It's all smoke and mirrors. Destroying the Earth and creating this world took nearly every bit of his energy. He's running dangerously low. But why does he want to access the multiverse? That, Strange does not know. Who would know is the new underground Sorcerer Supreme, a man named Brother Voodoo. Reed can find him in the southern swamplands. Before he can say any more, Beck can be heard coming back, arguing with someone. Reed goes back outside, hiding once again. In the room walks Beck, joined by Mordo. The sheriff comes for Strange. Doom has some questions for him that he needs to ask. Beck protests for the puppet is a main attraction of his show, but Mordo could care less. He grabs the puppet and leaves the building, joined by his Doom guards. Reed makes his way back down to Valeria and Franklin, where they both spy. 
Mordo uses his radio and asks his partner how the skies are looking. And at that moment, above in the air, the Silver Surfer can be seen. Valeria is excited and frightened to see her husband again, trying to call him for him, but stopped by Reed and Franklin. This is not the time for a reunion. Baron Mordo notifies the surfer that there was a set of three people, an older man, a younger man, and a woman, that the school didn't recognize and found suspicious. He's leaving, Nor but Norin is uh, to stay and inspect New Xandar for them. That's when Richards decides to leave. Hours of interrogation have passed at the Maestro's hideout. In a dimly lit room, Patch and Hulkling, who is behind nervously, stand above Kate Bishop, tied in a wheelchair. Joined by two Hulk guards, she hasn't said anything, only mocked their methods of beating. Patch tells her it can be over like that if she tells them about the resistance, but Kate responds, You know plenty about them already. You killed enough of them. You don't recognize me, do you? Patch looks at her and he starts to. She's the girl. Barton's girl. That's right, she continues. You killed Clint, Laura, and the kids. No, I didn't, Logan says. Oh, I'm sorry. What I meant to say was, you sent a Hulk squad to a resistance base that was dedicated to feeding the hungry to neutralize Hawkeye. Patch stands back in shame, and Hulkling is horrified of what he's just heard. All he says is that it's all for the greater good. Doom's greater good. But Kate can give a damn about his excuses. She's Hawkeye now, and she's going to kill Patch. Why? Because she's the best there is at what she does. Patch stands. All right. Patch leaves Kate to be guarded by Hulkling. In the hall, he catches his breath, checking up on the other prisoner. And on the outside, the other interrogation room housing Carol Danvers, there sits a lineup of different Hulk soldiers with broken hands and arms. For hours, they've been injuring themselves while punching her. Time to send in the big boy, Patch says. In the room, Carol is humming a little tune, waiting calmly. She's joined by She-Hulk, who leans on the wall, looking at her. So, you think you know me, she asks. Carol responds, I said I knew of you. In the old world, Walters continues, where I was in... Avenger. Why do I have the sinking feeling that you don't believe me? Carol asks. Well, because you're not the best storyteller. But you're strong. I'll give you that. However, you're not strong enough for the next guy they bring in. Tell me about the resistance and we can cut a deal. Carol chuckles. That's right. I did hear you used to be a lawyer. You're good. You're really good. She-Hulk is shaken by her knowledge of that. And slowly, she starts to reconsider whether she believes her or not. But it's too late. The door opens again, and Danvers chuckles. <laughs> Who's next? Someone who can lift 400? But it's much worse than that. In the room walks a giant, the personification of rage. It is the maestro himself, but Carol recognizes him, for he used to be Bruce Banner, the Hulk. But now he's different, completely intimidating, with a gray beard. He looks to his cousin, Jennifer, and tells her to leave. Completely scared of him, she does. The two are now alone. Carol asks what happened to him and why he's doing this. The maestro responds, I'm not a man, not a monster. It took time and death, but I've realized I'm divine. You think you're strong. Doom thinks he's strong. 
but I'm the strongest one there is. And in these rooms, I ask the questions. He towers over Danvers, and she's finally intimidated. He punches her to the ground with force that shakes the entire base. If you're stronger than Doom, why are you working for him, Bruce? Don't worry. Over time, he'll be working for me. Another punch. In the other room, Kate and Hulkling feel the shockwave of Maestro's punch. That must be Dad, says Hulkling. Kate is shocked. The Maestro has kids. The two Hulk guards mock Hulkling, saying he's not really the son. He's an unwanted scrawl that their boss took pity on. Kate sympathizes with Hulkling, saying that she knows he's not a violent soul, which is why she warns him to duck. The guards are confused, but that's when a beeping can be heard from Kate. It's a location beacon, letting her allies know where she is. An explosion breaks the wall, burying the two guards, but Hulkling takes cover. Kate manages to get out of the chair, and her hawk squad comes in, all with bows and arrows. They hand her a spare, and the sound of an attack can be heard throughout the facility. She orders her men to go for the foundations of the HQ that keeps it standing. Bring them down, then you bring the whole thing down. She offers sanctuary to Hulkling, but he's too frightened to accept. In the other room, Maestro leaves the beaten Carol, demanding to know what happened. That's when Kate takes the opportunity to find Danvers and help her to the feet. Damn, you got your ass kicked, she says. All over, Hawkeyes fight off Hulks. The Resistance takes out their vehicles, steals some of their equipment, including weapons, and throughout the chaos, Kate manages to pull the worn-out Carol through the exit. She-Hulk notices this and decides to let them go and focuses on finding Hulkling. They steal some transport and manage to flee, but before they are fully clear, Carol looks back to the entrance where the Hulks are chasing them and musters enough energy to blast the entrance right on top of their The Maestro and the Hulks are caved in. She-Hulk and Hulkling come up to the Maestro along with the Red Hulk, where he asks what the next move is. He tells him it won't take long to get the caves open, but in the meantime, they gotta get their communications back up. They need to nail the resistance with a hammer. In the middle of the night, the tides leading to Atlantis are quick and heavy. It takes the small boat crewed by Warpath and T'Challa rocking back and forth to make it there. They finally can see the island guarded, patrolled with its own navy. Thankfully, Warpath has it in with one of the captains and they're allowed to pass. He tells T'Challa that he's been secretly shepherding as many mutants as he can away from Atlantis. But why are the mutants here? He'll see. As the two hit the beach, they make their way inside, keeping under the profile. Up in the palace of Atlantis, Namor arrives at his home, finally. Pouring himself a drink, he senses another presence, telling her that she should stop sneaking up on him. It never works. Behind him is Susan Storm, the invisible woman, his queen. She comes up, seductively, asking how the king has been, saying she's missed him. As he falls for her charm, she gets some information that she normally wouldn't. That's when he drops the facade, and she does as well. They now only show contempt for each other. She's heard rumors from the staff that Namor targets specific commoners for underground gladiatorial matches. He denies it, but Susan is too smart for this. After years of being married to him, she knows his tells better than anyone. How could you, Namor? She demands to know. My soldiers need to be entertained, my dear. Card tricks? They're not enough these days, he tells her. It's pure evil, she says. And what about you, my love? 
How long have you known? How long have you lived in a palace with servants, knowing what was under your bed? What is truly evil? A wrongdoer or someone who lives off him? Susan is silent until I'm leaving with them, and you know you can't stop me. Yes, I know, Namor admits. You're too powerful. <laughs> but what's funny about blunt force is that it doesn't need to get creative. He clicks a trigger, and the jewelry that Susan wears turns into a shot collar that only tightens to her skin and depowers her. Namor's right-hand man, Tiger Shark, comes in, grabbing her and placing her in chains. But before she's put away, Namor wants to show her something. The now ex-couple goes deep under the surface of Atlantis in an isolated basement. The sound of soldiers cheering and whistling is heard. Susan is shown that the rumors are true, and tonight is fight night. In one corner, a Wakandan, a warrior, the gorilla M'Baku. In the imposing corner, a mutant, an ex-hero, the mighty Colossus. Neither wants to fight, knowing the clear winner. Ding, their fight begins. Susan is horrified, and Namor tells her that she could have just listened, kept quiet, stopped claiming responsibility. This is what, makes, what it means to be a hero. In the greats of the basement, T'Challa and Warpath are there, witnessing the same fight. The Black Panther is disgusted, but then he sees Susan on the other side, being taken away to the cell. That's when Warpath says they don't have much time to get the other mutants. They go. Later, T'Challa and Warpath are back on the beaches with some mutant refugees. They lead them to the boat, and when they're ready to leave, T'Challa decides to stay. He has to free his people. He has to find Storm. Warpath tells him that he's just one man. He's not enough. But the king asks him, You and Hope, you are together. You love her? And they are. When you get back to her, after helping all these people tonight, you'll know why I'm staying. Warpath and Black Panther shake hands, and as they separate, they're one step closer to liberation. In New Xandar, plenty of students and local families are forced home. The Novas have declared a state of martial law, as if it were any different than usual. Many citizens are complacent, giving their information to different soldiers and watchdogs. Leading this manhunt is the Silver Surfer. Doing their best to escape, Reed, Val, and Franklin. Back in the shop district, peddlers are forced to close off. Even some of their funds are being taken by the soldiers, all to fund the army. Reed and the kids seem to be cornered off. There's no hope for escape as Nova's close and close in. That's when they're offered sanctuary. But by who? Obviously, the Grand Master once again, leading the family into the collector's shop. They reveal to be secret agents for the resistance and have a portal for refugees that leads to their base deep in the savage land. It's time to go, and as the portal opens, the Richardses get in position to leave, but Val tells him that she has to stay. She has to get to Norrin, and she pushes her brother and father through. The portal closes, and Val is left there. The shop is entered by Norrin, leading some of the Novas. He threatens the Collector and Grandmaster for information, but Val comes out, telling him that she surrenders. Norrin is shocked, for he recognizes her. His last memory of Val, that day in Latveria. She used to be Doom's Herald also, but she also told him that he was more than this. Conflicted, the Silver Surfer quietly takes Valeria into custody. They leave New Xandar, heading for Doomstadt. Reed and Franklin are shot from the teleporter in a dusty cave. 
Not acknowledging the area, Franklin yells about how they have to go back and save Valeria. But as Reed is calming down, they are interrupted. Guards of the resistance approach, with their weapons aimed, identify. They demand. Uh, they demand an identification before they're shot. Kang comes to their aid, ordering the guards to lower their weapons. The two Richards are led through the safe haven, directly to the medical area. There, they see Carol Danvers lying on the table, being stitched by Dr. Kamala Khan, previously Miss Marvel. Kate standing there, telling Reed uh, that they have crippled the maestro's forces, and that they finally gained something of an upper hand. Richards asks Kang to see the head of the resistance, so that he can acquire transport for himself and Franklin. Yeah, that's what I wanted to tell you earlier, Kang responds. But like I told him, Reed, says a familiar voice from behind. You like your surprises. Reed knows the voice. However, it's older, much more mature, but tired. He turns around to see the leader of the resistance, his old friend and student, Johnny Storm, the former human torch. He's different, with gray in his, his beard now. Reed often forgets how long he and the others were in stasis. So now, Johnny is around his age. The two hug and reunite. Coming from behind, Johnny's wife, still after all this time, Alicia, who was walked to Reed due to her blindness. It's good for Reed and Franklin to see them both. Johnny thanks his son for finding their family. Reed is confused. Your son? That's when he turns to Kang, saying, You're his... Nathan? Baby Nathan? Kate, next to Kang, chuckles at the nickname. Yeah, Kang was a nickname. My god, son. You've grown so much. And Reed hugs the teenager in a way that makes him shrug back and forth. You're my cousin? asks Franklin. Great. Later outside the caves, a hidden spot meant for the resistance's fallen. A number of different gravestones. Jeanette Van Dyne, Hank Pym, Scott Lang. Before them stands Cassian Hope, both left mourning. It wasn't too long after the Herbie ships were taken by Doom. The death of, Frank, uh, of Hank was too much for Jan to handle, for they both felt this purpose, this need to protect their family, and in the end, they felt as if they failed. I can't even protect myself, says Cassie. I'm not a hero like the rest of them. I'm not what this world needs. Not everyone has to be part of the action, says Hope, to make an impact. Your dad wouldn't want you to go off putting yourself at risk like that. He risked it, Cassie retorts. Every day, every fight, even at the end. Who would ever think Ant-Man would be the one to die trying to save the world? I'm his daughter, and I won't let that be for nothing. Cassie turns to Hope. You know I'm right. Help me. Right there. Hope can only feel pride in the young Lang. And she tells her to spread her feet into a balanced stance, raise her fist, and show her what she's got. The training for her has begun. Later, back in the caves, Reed and Johnny, along with Franklin and Nathan, sit. With some refreshments amongst all the Samaritan work, uh, Reed tells her him how amazing that is, how he can't believe Johnny put this all together. I only took your lead, Johnny replies. Started a new, much smaller future foundation. Found as many teachers as we could for an underground agriculture. Hunting, medical work, humanitarianism. We do what we can to reach some sort of civility. And look where it's led, says Nathan. 
were hotter on the maestro's scent more than ever. Reed asks Nathan whether he's proud of his father or not, and Nathan's problem isn't with the actions, but he deems them futile. It's all pointless. They're not an army. They literally live under a rock. Sure, a school, a garden, a hospital may seem like a good investment, but to what? There's a reason he's more interested in the past, because to him, there is no future. Johnny is heartbroken in hearing his son say this. Nathan walks away, but before he can go, Reed tells him that Valeria has been taken by Norrin to Doom. Can he help? Maybe send someone? But Nathan offers to go himself, with the help of Kate. He's off. Johnny tells Reed that he's not been the perfect father, letting the rebuilding of this society to get in the way of his family at times. Reed knows he's doing his best. So, you need transport. Where and why? asks Johnny. I found strange, Reed says. He told me that Doom has plans for the multiverse, and that a man named Brother Voodoo in the southern swamplands would have more information. I need to get there. There's a secret ship with pirates that Johnny has commerce with from time to time for goods and services. He could possibly take them, but are they sure it's a good idea? Reed is confused. But it's a fair point. The last time Reed came to Johnny asking for his help, they went to another planet where Ben died and right after Doom attacked and destroyed the Earth. We're not superheroes anymore, Reed. We're trying to live, and I can't sacrifice any more men and women for your cause, he says. Reed is silent, pondering, recognizing the irony and deja vu of their conversation. I'm surprised you haven't asked about Sue, Johnny mentions. I haven't seen her in years, but... The rumor is she's been living it up in Atlantis with Namor. She was kidnapped, says Franklin. You know your mother, Frank. Her power, her smarts, she could have left any time she wanted. I hate to say it, but she's one of them. You've grown pretty cynical, Johnny, says Reed. No, I've just grown up, he responds. At that moment, an alarm is raised. It's one of the Resistance's secret informants, the Valkyrie. Johnny rushes to the radio, hearing the warning. I didn't have time. They found you. They're coming now. Johnny raises the alarm to evacuation status. All the residents, as if they've been trained in waiting, get up single file and grab their necessities. Kamala leads the medic staff. Hope and Cassie come in, leading security. And the civilians are rushed by Nathan, who helps his mother. Johnny tells Reed and Franklin to go down secret tunnels to reach the ships. They'll take them to the swamps. But at that moment... The wall next to Johnny is blasted. He gets knocked back, and Nathan comes up, rushing to his father's aid. He's only dizzy and will be fine. Coming through the wall, towering everyone, is the maestro's cavalry. A god. As a matter of fact, the same god from the beginning of our story. Thor, but with a gray beard and a grimaced face. Oh shit, says Nathan. Behind Thor, other pantheons of gods he commands. The mighty Hercules. Ares, God of War, and the Warriors Three, all attacking the Resistance in the name of Doom. Rats, he yells Thor, as he swings his axe, splitting lightning across the home. The gods spread through, fighting guards while the rest of the weary escape. Reed yells to Franklin, to the head into the tunnel. He will catch up with them. As he does so, Reed uses his stretching powers to wrap around Thor's body, entangling him with the hope of bringing him to the floor. Rubber man, Thor marks. He grabs Richards with his might and tosses him down. At that point, Carol saves Reed at the last second, using her power to punch Thor away. She's still weakened, but not enough to miss this fight. 
Reed rushes to Franklin. Carol goes back after Thor, and the impact is ground-shaking. Thor, this isn't you, yells Carol. What do you know of me, woman? Only my thunder! Ares and Hercules attack upon the civilians and meet some inhumans with fighting spirit. If only you'd suffice, says Hercules. You've not status against I, for my fists have bled hydras and ripped apart Cerberus. Laser fire upon them uh, from the side, from Nathan, and to his side, Johnny, both with stolen Kree technology. Kate aids their fire and creates smoke bombs to disorient and, ex and an explosive arrow to the boulders above their attackers. For the moment, Hercules and Ares are down. Johnny comes to Alicia and tells Nathan and Kate to get out of there and save Valeria. Kate leaves with them with the Hawk Squad. Families first, so Johnny says. Nate and Kate flee. Thorn knocks Carol back, away, right into the Warriors Three. The refugees are almost gone, and Carol stands between their escape and the gods. Thor, Hercules, Ares, and the Warriors Three close in. Last chance, she warns. What would Jane think? Thor stops, and he's even angrier now. Jane was killed by savages, just like you. All I have left is your doom. Thor's lightning crackles, but Carol powers up, screaming. The energy emanating is blinding, and she blasts them back with power that would carve a mountain. This takes nearly everything out of her, but she manages to catch up with the refugees to Johnny. They're headed to New Xandar. Away from the action, it's dawn. The sun is rising as Rhodey pilots his ship. Waking up in the passenger area is Sam, who comes up to the cockpit, joining Coulson and their tour guide. In the distance, the skyline of New York City is seen with a rising sun. <laughs> At least that's still beautiful, Wilson remarks. On their radio system, Oscorp Command calls, requesting their information, or they'll be shot down. With some forged records, Rhodey can land. After landing, the three of our heroes make their way under the radar into the city, Coulson pushing Rhodey's wheelchair and Wilson under the sunglasses. As they walk, they see different ads, t-shirts, banners, and blimps with Mayor Osborne's image. Osborne, your mayor, your man, your friend. On a giant virtual billboard, an excerpt from the Daily Bugle with J. Jonah Jameson. And I'm proud, proud mind you, proud of our fair city to finally be rid of menaces. Mayor Osborne is exactly the answer we need to make our city great, clean, and economically sound. Rhodey tells them that they need to find the Patriots, for they'll have enough manpower to enact their plan. That's when they see a giant helicarrier in the air, bigger than any one before. The USB drive they were given will help reprogram the new Project Insight, an algorithm for potential threats within New Manhattan. Not this shit again, says Wilson. As they go further into the city, they find more and more crowds of people, all gathered at Times Square. A giant presentation is starting, and in the crowd, plenty of Osborne supporters. On the stage, the presenter once again, Mysterio, warms up the crowd, getting them all excited. You've been asking for it, and we've heard you, New Hatton. Presented to you by Doom and paid for by Mayor Osborne, I present you, your new Avengers. Jumping, flying, and crawling up on the stage are different characters who were at one time considered major threats. We see the Scorpion, the Shocker, the Vulture, Craven the Hunter, and Mysterio. 
The six of us will fight for you every day, 24-7, no charge. But wait, I know what you're thinking. Where's number six? Well, my friends, I present to you our leader, your icon, the Iron Patriot. The Iron Patriot lands in a repainted Iron Man armor, mimicking the color scheme of Captain America. The crowd goes wild. In the audience, Rhodey looks at it. That prick stole my look. Wilson asks, your look? Taking off his helmet, the Iron Patriot is revealed to be Mayor Norman Osborn, who tells the people that the Avengers are at their service. And as crowds grow louder, our three heroes in the middle get more uncomfortable. They need to get out of there quickly. And at that moment, the sound of sirens can be heard, disrupting the whole event. And over a PA system, a teen's voice is heard. Not the real Avengers. A smoke bomb is thrown to the stage, and the crowd panics and disperses the area. Osborne's dark Avengers take his lead in formation and go full-on offense. Atop a nearby roof, a young teen can be seen. A black boy dressed in a red, white, and blue armor, with a shield similar to Captain America's. His name is Elijah Bradley, but he goes by the Patriot. He yells, PATRIOTS! He and other vigilantes such as Daredevil, Luke Cage, The Punisher, Cloak, and Dagger jump down to fight the imposter heroes. The fight begins. Sam and Coulson want to help, but Rhodey tells them that they're not ready for a fight. They need to get one of the Patriots to lead them to their base. Instead of fighting, Wilson and Coulson rush to the wheel uh, to wheel Rhodey away from the danger. Havoc behind them ensues. Daredevil goes up against Craven. Luke Cage fights off the Iron Patriot. Frank Castle tries shooting down the Vulture, and the Patriot fights off the Scorpion. Through the havoc, Sam is split from another, uh, from the other two. And right when some rubble is about to fall atop him, he's saved by a familiar face. What are you doing on the ground, soldier? Says the voice. Sam looks up and sees it's his old partner. James Buchanan Barnes, the Winter Soldier. Sam is actually glad to see him for once, and they need help. Bucky tells Patriot to fall back, and they do, and they um, do, making their cover through another smoke grenade. Frank can't help himself before they disappear, and he shoots the shocker through his lung, leaving him for dead. The Patriots disappear. The Dark Avengers regroup. Osborne tells Craven to create a perimeter, and Vulture to check the skies. Mysterio will hack into civilians' phones and cameras to look for these patriots. They stand over the shocker who's bleeding out, and Osborne asks himself, Why on Doom's green earth did I say yes to you, Sherman? He puts the shocker out of his misery, blasting him with a repulsor. Osborne tells Scorpion to bring in their understudy. I don't care if you have to drag him from his lab. I'm taking Octavius off the bench. The Dark Avengers disperse, leaving the area for damage control. In the sewers, the Patriots and their guests move quickly and deeper into the roots of the city, passing different security systems, guards, and cameras. They come to their home, or at least the closest thing to one. In it, they pass some boxes of artillery, extra suits, food, but that's it. This is their little base. Luke meets his wife, Jessica Jones, who's pregnant with his child. Matt comes up to his lover, Karen Page, who helps set his arm in place. Rhodey is disheartened. How are they supposed to get the helicarrier with such a small crew? You don't, says an older voice from the shadows. Getting up to face them all, slowly with his cane, is a much, much older man. It's amazing how mobile and lucid he is. 
but that's what Super Soldier Serum will do to you. It's Captain Steve Rogers. You just don't, he says. Sam, Coulson, and Rhodey are shocked to see him. The original Captain America. Or that's what you would think at first. Elijah's great-grandfather, Isaiah, was like many other black men during World War II, experimented on. And he was the first successful candidate of the serum. Elijah found Rogers and the others to fight back, to reclaim their city. So it hurts to hear this from him. Sam comes up to Rogers, asking what happened to him. The man he used to know would never come to this, hiding in a sewer, giving up. We had an army, Sam, Steve tells him. We tried fighting back, but Osborne kept pinning us as the bad guys. You can't believe that, Steve. You just can't sit here, letting these families live in sewers. I'm old, Sam. There comes a point where you run out of energy to believe, especially when the young don't want to. For years, we tried doing the right thing, until most of our people died or gave up and left. Their people? Who is Steve talking about? The kid, Parker. He had so much potential. Then the weight of this war was too much for him. And one day, Doom opened a portal, trying to recreate New York using pieces from other universes. It got messy, and other people from the wor uh, those worlds started spilling into their own. Peter took the others. Those others became his followers, his spiders, and they left. But where did they go? Steve tells him that, rumor has it, they're living on Liberty Island. More like Spider Island, says Patriot. They're too scared to keep the fight going. I've fought wars all my life, Elijah, says Steve. They're damn right to be scared. Sam is haunted when he sees Steve this way, and he looks back to Bucky for some reality check. He must be dreaming. But no, he's awake. We're not done, Cap. Rhodey, Coulson, and I are here with the key to winning this thing. And you have a good crew. We can still do this. Coulson interjects. But it would be good to have some help, especially if Parker has civilians on his side. We need the voices of the people, not just a militia. Steve thinks he's seeing ghosts. But no, it really is Phil Coulson. My god, didn't think I'd see you so soon, Phil. You too, sir, Coulson replies. Coulson offers to go to Spider Island and convince Parker to help them, but he won't go alone. The Patriot will be his guide. Steve tells them that all it can do to convince Parker of his people, maybe he'll be convinced. Until then, he's lost too many fights to start thinking he'll win the next one. They were my people, Sam. Americans. Now that shield has been twisted into something of hatred. We'll prove you wrong, Cap, Wilson replies. It's midday in the House of M, where Scott sits with Jean in a park. In the distance, Warpath and Hope are walking together, making the most of this hidden and small moment away from the violence. Scott is proud of Jean, raising their daughter the way she did. But one thing that confuses him, does she have powers? Jean is reluctant, but yes, Hope does. She also has telepathy. But it's not just that. She's showing signs of the Phoenix Force. Really? At this age? It's earlier than when Jean originally showed signs. But has Jean told her about it? Gone deeper into it? The answer is no. She can't and she won't. Scott is confused. Wait a minute. You live in a mutant capital of the world, and you're telling our daughter she's not a mutant? Scott, you remember what happened with us in the Phoenix, right? 
how everyone came after me while I was pregnant with hope. I can't let her have that life. So you'll just pretend that she has one instead. What happens if she goes deeper into her powers? She'll be taken away by the Scarlet Witch's forces. She'll be sent to Atlantis. And that's when Scott's heard enough. In the high palace of the House of M, Wanda sits looking out to the view with the vision yo-yo in her hand. She looks down to it with great regret, asking herself what she must do. But her thoughts are interrupted when Scott barges in with hope, guiding him. The guards are cautious, but Wanda allows their presence. Summers berates Maximoff. How dare you, Wanda? First you nearly wipe us out, then you marry Doom just to control us? And from what I hear, that's not even not enough. Namor uses us for sport. I promised my people a beautiful life, and your paper town down there is not it. Wanda is silent. What can she say? She can only look down in guilt. Vision would be ashamed, Scott ends off with. He leaves still guided by his daughter, and to the side of Wanda are Wakan and Speed, who heard the whole thing. They ask her if what he said was true. Does she and Doom do this to their people? Why? Wanda comes to them, saying that they would... They did what was good for the world, for them. But that's not enough for them, especially Wakan. He's not only a mutant, he's gay. And here he is living comfortably as more of his people are being stepped on and beaten. The brothers leave the room and Wanda is heartbroken. As Scott and Hope leave, he pulls out a comms device contacting T'Challa to check his progress. In the minds of Atlantis, T'Challa is undercover, working hard to avoid suspicion. He tells Scott that he's making his way to his people, and then the mutants. As he hangs up, he notices a woman drop a bag of rocks due to her wariness. He helps her and realizes that it's his sister, Shuri. The two hug and asks where their mother is. But the old of don't work labor, they make clothing. Where's Storm? Namor has her as his prized possession, high in his war tower. Later, when it's feeding time, Wakandans are given the scraps of Atlantean food for their work. Shuri and T'Challa sneak away. They make their way to the prisons of where Wakandans and mutants are separated and forced to train for the gladiatorial matches. In there, T'Challa is reunited with M'Baku and separated and, uh, and, and his personal Dormilaje Okoye. His sight brings them new hope, and they immediately are ready to follow him into battle. However, they have to play the waiting game, and he has to find Susan Storm. T'Challa is then taken to a private prison of Sue. M'Baku and Okoye take down the guards. T'Challa opens the door and talks to her. She's suspicious, not recognizing him. But does she recognize the names Reed, Ben, Johnny, Franklin, and Valeria? And somehow she does. Who are they? T'Challa explains to Sue that Doom and Namor destroyed their home and restarted. They've brainwashed everyone, including her. Deep down, she knows it's true. She offers her help and asks what the plan is. How do they get out? Above New Manhattan, the giant helicarrier witnesses the city, with searchlights peering through buildings, searching for traitors. Aboard the vessel, Osborne lands in his mechanized suit. The primitive AI, Norton L, takes each piece of and is seen that the different engineering and propulsion systems are automated and ran by the AI. Osborne passes his platoons of soldiers from his private hammer militia. He also passes holding cells of caught members of this resistance and possible suspects who would know the location of Peter Parker. 
old classmates, family members, and girlfriends are interrogated and tortured. Norman enters his laboratories where Norton L. assists Dr. Otto Octavius in building technology for their army. Osborne tells the scientist that he'll be joining his team to search for the Patriots and the Spiders, especially the Spiders. Otto, however, is a scientist not interested in hunting for sport. Osborne doesn't listen and intimidates Octavius until he agrees. By the way, how's their side project coming along? The Hobgoblin, you mean, asks Otto. He's in the other room, without about 30 days of sleep. This new brainwashing technique is a bit primitive, Norman. Quite close to torture. Norman heads to the room. Trust me, he doesn't know torture. The door opens and Norman sees the Hobgoblin's guards, the towering rhino, and the shocking Electro. They guard a younger man sitting amongst different monitors, heading the search investigation of New Manhattan. Osborne relieves them both, and he's alone with the Hobgoblin. How's it going? Have you found anything? The young man is silent. I know you're probably holding back information. You probably know where Parker is, or where he was. And you probably think I'm a monster. But I'm not. I'm just a father without a son. Did your friend ever tell you about that? How when Doom put me in charge of what was left of civilization, the children didn't appreciate my approach. My sacrifice. They fought under a shield, but they banded together under a spider. Did you know that one of these kids was my boy? His name was Harry. He was Parker's first best friend, and Parker got him killed. So when you continue to look, just remember what it really is you're trying to find. Norman heads out, but stops. Oh, before I go, wanted to give you something for all your hard work. He sets a Lego piece of Yoda next to the Hobgoblin. I heard you liked the guys in the chair. Happy hunting, kid. Norman leaves a Peter Parker's best friend, Ned Leeds, to continue the manhunt for Spider-Man. Ned is left with a tear in his eye and drool from his mouth. With his computer and all the effort he can muster, Ned hacks past Norman's uh, firewalls and sends out a message in Morse code to the unknown. On the harbor of New Manhattan, You can see the helicarrier continue its search from the distance, but as you travel further, you will hit a small, abandoned, and desolate island, one that used to stand for liberty until it was torn down. On their small boat, Coulson and Elijah land and are met by two guards. These guards are spidered out, one in a dark trench coat, calling himself Spider-Man Noir. In fact, he sounds a lot like that guy from Con Air, Coulson mentions. The other guard, a young Asian teenage girl named Penny Parker in a mechanized suit. The guards recognize the Patriot and allow them entrance. As they're led within the community, they see different refugees from NM, similarly to those in the Savage Land, but their defenses are built up and still being built by webbing. Coulson notes how they're really stuck to this spider theme. They pass the garage where spiders like Miguel O'Hara from the year 2099 are working on different vehicles, like the spider buggy, updating with intuitive technology. Up on the walls, Jessica Drew and Silk patrol, led by Spider Gwen, keeping an eye out for intruders. An odd cartoon pig named Spider Ham is entertaining some of the children on the island, but it's not the weirdest thing Coulson has seen, oddly. Nora asks what Spider Island can do for them, And he responds, we're looking for Peter Parker. I'm Peter Parker, says a voice to the side. 
and as Coulson looks toward the voice, he grows a puzzled look, mentioning that he doesn't look like the Peter Parker from his databanks. That's because he's not the same one. This one is from Earth 211 and is played by Andrew Garfield. He's the communications officer for the island. He directs the two visitors to Parker, the leader of their community. They approach a construction area where different members of this small community are working together to lift beams that will help create homes for their homeless. A giant one is helping with the heavy load, and it's a black-coated behemoth of two identities. Eddie Proc, a.k.a. Venom, leading the construction. There he is, Peter Parker of Earth-616, played by Tom Holland. Along with him, his partner, his right-hand man, Miles Morales, played by Shamik Moore. Coulson approaches him, introducing himself. However, Peter is too distracted, almost acting dismissive towards film. He's too busy on his project, focused on bettering his society more than adding to a feudal war. Coulson notes that he's not acting at all like the Spider-Man he's heard about. First Cap, now you? Of all people you gave up? How can you even call yourself Spider-Man if that's the case? Asks Coulson. I don't call myself that anymore, Mr. Coulson. And I didn't give up. I moved on. We offered them the same chance. They wanted to keep fighting, says Peter. That's because there's still something to fight for, Mr. Parker. Parker deep down knows he's right, but ignores the feeling. Coulson and Patriot are free to stay there as long as they need. As he walks away, Coulson tells him that his cybernetic mind has files on all Avengers, including him, and he noticed that his family isn't to be seen. Aunt May, MJ, his friends, did he just give up on them too? Peter is ashamed, and he looks to Miles. Hear him out at least, Pete. Parker looks back, and he says, First of all, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. Now, what do you want? Coulson replies, First... Why are there multiple versions of you? Down south, the seas turn from blue to dark green as the pirates approach the swamplands on a giant wooden ship. Reed and Franklin look aboard, seeing the bayou as it grows bigger and bigger. The deckhands prepare for the ship's halt. Different pirates, such as Mark Spector, Kurt Wagner, Daisy Johnson, and Robbie Reyes. As Johnson uses her quaking ability to push the ship's sail, Another deckhand sings a song with too many explicit words to count. This man is Wade Wilson, Deadpool. The ship's captain is none other than the Daywalker, Blade. As the fog of the wetlands clear, they float deeper and deeper within the marsh, and on passing lands, men and women in formal robes stand practicing Tai Chi. They've reached the new Kamartage, home for mystics. As Blade ships dock, Reed and Franklin are met by their guide, Wong. They reunite, and the Richards are welcomed. The three go deeper into the swamp while Blade's crew wait. Richards notices that many young students are there practicing forms, but not magic. Wong tells them that the spirit itself will lead to magic and the power it gives. Reed is there for the same spiritual development, even if he doesn't know it yet. Reed says that Strange sent him there to meet with Brother Voodoo. They need to find the answers of the multiverse. They have to find out what Doom's up to. Answers cast a greater image than your quest, Richards, says Wong. And as they grow closer to Voodoo, Richards notices a school of young students led in Tai Chi 
by Danny Rand, the immortal Iron Fist, and Shang-Chi, the master of Kung Fu. Franklin jokes, is that where he teaches them to do the crane kick? Wong adds, Kamataj is growing, whether it be in Doom's world or not. The spirit is always taught, hardly forgotten. And finally, Reed and Franklin arrive to the center of the swamp, where they see Voodoo. He sits stagnantly, meditating with eyes closed. Atop his head, dreads and braids with feathers. Around his neck, bones of different creatures from the multiverse. He is calmed, greeting Richards. I know your travel's been long, Dr. Richards, but it is the same for any endowed with a destiny such as yours. A, t a third eye opens on Voodoo's forehead, looking at them, and Franklin is visibly grossed out. Reed offers his condolences for the state of Strange, but Voodoo tells him that Stephen will join them soon enough. To due to Reed's presence, Voodoo is convinced that all shall occur as destiny offers. You can see the future? asks Franklin. I can see pages of a book. It's a gift offered to few, offered to us. Reed interjects, I came here to access the multiverse, to find the power of the Beyonders, to know why Doom is trying to access it, and how that information can be used to change everything back. But that's not why he's there. At least, that's not what Voodoo believes. Richards is there to help them turn the next page. Before Reed can peer into the multiverse, he must go in between. In between what? The in-between. It's a place in and out of reality. This is where the answers will be offered. But is he ready? Going further will mean they forfeit comfort, security, and are only left with vulnerability. They will face their fears and will doubt themselves. There will be no going back. However, in going forth, the key to this world's freedom will be as clear as the reflection. Reed and Franklin look back to each other, and yes, they are ready. Brother Voodoo gets up and uses his staff to tap specific vines of the swamp. From the lake behind, Reed and Franklin uh, can hear movement, and it can be seen from the lake. And a creature rises from the water, high above any of them, seven feet tall, encased in dripping grass, with an odd trunk. Richards, says Voodoo, this is our guide in between. The Man-Thing. The Man-Thing is the essence of the swamp the living organism, the reason why Kamataj is stationed there, because there can be no magic without the purest form of life. Silently, the creature joins with Voodoo to open a doorway to the in-between. Light starts to grow, shining brighter and brighter, overtaking them all. And when Reed can finally open his eyes, he sees a plane of grass encased in a jar. Outside of the jar, endless stars multiplying, splitting, acting as the cells of our body. Reed can see the birth of an endless world, an endless universe. This is the purest view of the multiverse. Next to Reed, Franklin's eyes open again. Where are we, Dad? They are in between. Voodoo and Manthing approach Reed and Franklin, affirming their comfort. The Sorcerer Supreme requests the presence of the in-between's master, and appearing in front of them all is Uwatu, the Watcher. Reed asks Uatu how he can access the power of the Beyonders. They must match Doom. Uatu informs them that years ago, when Doom recreated the world, he used most of his power to merge elements of other universes within, hoping to make a society that was strong enough to dominate all. He believed in doing so, he could launch an unprecedented era of peace. 
But when incorporating other realities, such as other Spider-Men's worlds, it was a mess. And he used so much of his power that he had little left to rectify his mistake. Now in his palace, he's been growing an alternative method to accessing the multiverse. His throne is the Tree of Worlds, Yggdrasil, a stolen relic from Asgard's past. The god of mischief Loki helped him plant it, and for 15 years, it's grown in scale and in power. He will tap into the energy of the tree and will start his world all over again. But what if he messes up again, says Franklin? Then he'll start over and over and over until he reaches perfection, says Uatu. But it's Victor we're talking about. It'll never be perfect, says Reed. Reed demands Uatu lead him to the secrets of the multiverse. They need something, anything that they can use. But before that, there are other matters to attend to. Uatu has seen many things, many events, as witness to the universe. And one key ingredient to reality survival is here with them. With the Watcher's power, he summons what seems to be a cocoon, encasing a person who appears to be in a form of stasis. He wakes her, and after 15 years of sleep, Jane Foster is back and awake. Reed recognized her as her from her theoretical work and heard she was an ally to Thor. Jane is clearly distorted after being sent through the Bifrost at the beginning of our story. She was found in the endlessness of space by Uatu. Her time of awakening is now. She asks Reed where Thor is. She had something to tell him, something that was dreadfully important. Richards is still haunted by the answer to her question, but he's honest. Thor is with Doom. He took him over. Jane is quiet for one second, and with a grimaced look, she turns to the Watcher and demands that he tells her everything, starting with this Doom guy. In the catacombs of Doomstan, Victor is in a deep dungeon next to a darkly lit cell, on that uh, one that's alone and caged with steel bars. He leans on the bars, looking within the cage, speaking to the prisoner. You could break these easily. I know you could. I know you've thought about it. I used to think about breaking my chains, my failures, ascending above them, if you will. In many ways, I'm still trying. Godhood can be luxurious, but it comes at a cost. It's a prison itself, where you never get to see your family, no matter how desperate or worried you are. Hmm. Now that I think about it, maybe you do know what that's like. But then again, there's a reason you're too afraid to come out of this cell. Maybe you don't want to admit that this is where you belong. Doom's AI Norton L notifies him, <laughs> notifies him that the scientists have come once again for their routine experimentation on the prisoner, and that Mordo and Silver Surfer are waiting hi uh, him in his throne room. Victor bids the mysterious prisoner adieu, and leaves us all wondering who it could be. As the scientists enter, the sound of the captive being scared is overt. No, no, please, not again. And as Victor walks away, a monstrous scream can be heard from the cell. Up on the surface, Victor walks through the campus of his palace, a stark contrast to the world outside, for this environment is well furnished with buildings of strong structure and citizens of genuine love for their god. Doom notices some children playing together in their own little Doom costumes, and as he walks by in his pristine white armor, the kids are bewildered. Victor passes many civilians, praising him, loving him, kneeling for him. 
he extends his hands to all, almost as a messiah would. When seeing a small family having a picnic, he asks Norton L. to contact Wanda. He wants to hear her voice. Unfortunately, she's not picking up. But Norton L. will leave a message for her. I'd prefer you do let me do that myself, Norton, says Doom. Is it true, Master? asks Norton L. What Mayor Osborne said, that an AI had caused you great pain in the past. Is this why you do not trust me? Is this why I am simply an appliance to you rather than another who worships you? Doom tells the AI that he cannot worship for he doesn't have a soul. Doom knows the soul very well. I believe in you. I listen to you. I love you, says Nortonel. You are God, and my prime directive, or as a human would call it, my reason for living, is to express your beauty in any way that I can. My lord, I can only grow as a mind of curiosity, not of heresy. Doom is silent, pondering the device's words as he reaches the palace doors, and as he reaches the elevator to his throne room, he sees the wall outside where guards patrol nonstop, and he rises above those. He sees his ultimate guard, his creation Galactus. The giant stands in the middle of his city, looking throughout, below, and the wasteland beyond. And beyond the wasteland, the ocean that leads to the rest of the world. Arriving to the top, he reaches his throne room, where Mordo and Surfer wait. Around them, other guards of doom, his deathlock squad, and the on the floor in the front of them, Valeria in chains and the stagnant puppet of Stephen Strange. He greets Stephen, but when he sees Valeria, his former herald and the daughter of his sworn enemy, he's petrified, stuck in a state of, that his worshippers have never seen before, the state of worry. The last time he saw her, Strange had saved her, her brother, and Reed. He's alive. Victor skips the pleasantries and grabs Valeria by the throat, lifting her high above. Where is he? Doom snarls. With his small gasps for air, she manages to say, Who's he? Doom uses the technology of his armor to shock Valeria with electricity. He drops her on the floor, asking again, but she will give him nothing. So again, she gets the shock. Norn is disturbed by her scream and feels deep inside that it's wrong. But what can he do? Doom is God. He screams louder and louder, the more Doom punishes. Back in, in between, Jane is caught up on what's happened to Earth, this new world, and what will happen to the multiverse. She sits in a shocked state. Reed asks Uatu what it will take to stop Doom, and he tells him that it will take an enormous will. Don't undersell them, Uatu, says a devilish voice surrounding them. A figure appears before all of them, as tall as Watu, dressed in a dark red robe with eyes tinted the same color and a pentagram on his chest. That's my job, this stranger continues. Who are you? asks Reed. The name's Damon Hellstrom, escort to what's after and beyond. Franklin looks at his dad and asks, what the hell does that mean? Reed replies, he's the devil's son. Well, technically that was my father. But good old Mephisto died with the last world. And with the new, well, you need someone in charge of the dead. Hellstrom tells them that the power to match Doom is not an easy venture. As it did for Victor, it demands sacrifice. For Doom, he gave up any chance to see his mother one more time. For Reed, 
it will be something different, something darker. That is, if he chooses to pursue the power. Reed is sure that he has to. How else will they save their people and change everything back to how it was? And at that moment, Franklin looks to his dad, asking why he would do that. Dad, love it or hate it, this is people's home. This is all some of them have known, says the son. It's all built on a lie, Frank, Reed responds. Once we get back to the way it was, we can't get back there, Franklin interrupts. Even if we did, would you take people from here and just drop them in a completely different world? What happens if they fight back? If they don't like the change, doesn't matter. At that point, how are you different from Doom? What do you suggest, Frank? Huh? That I just leave all as is? Of course not, Dad. You're a teacher. Teach them to be better. Hellstrom interjects. As you can see, this is not as easy as snapping your fingers. In fact, it gets more complicated. Damon turns, uh, tunes into the sounds of a woman screaming, making it heard for everyone else in between. It is the screaming of Valeria. Reed and Franklin are horrified and call for her, but she can't hear. Back in Doom's palace, he continues to zap Bell. She looks up. You won't get me to talk. It's not you I'm trying to convince, Doom sneers. He continues to zap until Strange manages to spill some words out. Stop, please. Doom stops and picks up the puppet. Victor assumes that he knows where Reed is, and with his thumb, he presses on Steven's wooden forehead like he did all those years ago. Looking into his mind's eye, he connects to his memory and picks up a location. The Swamplands, he tells Mordo, who prepares a squad. But wait, there's something else. Doom goes deeper into the mind and actually makes some sort of contact with Reed. His astral form appears in the in-between. Richards and Victor see each other for the first time in years, and they are startled. <laughs> Every time I try to kill you, says Doom, you just slip away. This is an interesting place. I see Franklin is okay, and you finally met Uatu. Victor, how did you find me? Oh, I wouldn't worry about that. It won't matter. You look very tired, Reed. Reed is tired, but he won't let that distract him. Victor, I know what you're planning. You won't be able to conquer the multiverse. You just won't. <laughs> I have a world's worth of undying loyalty, Richards. The math is just not with you this time. As it were, as if it were in the first place. Not for long, Victor. Victor takes a second. Not for long. What did Reed mean by that? There are more of you, he says. More survivors. You think you'll turn my people on me? We'll see. Wait, Mordo. Take Strange with you. Reed is confused. Victor just started talking to no one. But in actuality, he was sending his men to newcomer Taj while they were busy catching up. Finally. Goodbye, Mr. Fantastic. Doom's astral form disappears, leaving those in between. They need to get back now. Brother Voodoo and the Man-Thing gather Reed, Franklin, and Jane together, preparing to take them back. Uatu and Hellstrom look to the heroes, warning them to prepare for unforeseen consequences. The light grows, and they leave. They're back in Newcomer Taj, and the Swamplands are attacked by Doom's personal guard of Deathlocks, led by Baron Mordo, who uses his portals to get them there quickly. In Mordo's hands, the strings of Strange, who's being dragged on the ground. Mordo, please, he begs. These are your people. Fellow sorcerers, you 
don't have to. Mordo is silent, knowing that Strange is right. But what can he do? He must follow Doom. Voodoo attacks him, demanding, damning his treachery. You are not welcome here. Hand Strange over now. The two engage in an epic battle. It's Mordo versus Voodoo. The Man-Thing focuses on defending the swamp, building giant walls to cover injured soldiers, and Franklin helps bring them to cover. Wong is there and helps defend the wall, casting great shields to block oncoming fire. Jane swings Mjolnir with mighty force, knocking back 20 cybernetic soldiers with a single swing. She summons great lightning and blasts more enemies away. The soldier Taskmaster tries to plunge his sword into Reed, but he's saved by the two fighters, Iron Fist and Shang-Chi. Both Kung Fu Masters fight Taskmaster, and the villain holds his own. From the throne room, Doom forces Valeria to watch the battle through an open portal. She sees her dad help other soldiers away from the fight, and she calls for him. He hears and sees the portal right in the middle of the battle, and he rushes as fast as he can. But it's for naught, since he's dogpiled by 30 different soldiers. He can't reach her. Some deathlocks attacking the defenses set some swamp vines on fire. The running flames catch up to Manthing, burning his arm, diverting his attention away from the helping the injured. The moaning pain can be heard from the battle and he falls to his knees. Franklin notices this, but he also notices his dad tackled by a platoon of soldiers. As irrational as it is, he rushes to his father's aid, all by himself. Meanwhile, Mordo's, Mordo's battle with Voodoo is fierce. He yells, telling him that he is no Sorcerer Supreme, and Mordo should have been given the status. The brother tells him that he's too angry to realize he could have easily, and too much of a fool to have been able to keep the title. In a rage, Mordo casts a spell of knives at Voodoo. A folly of blades rushes to the warlock, but as he raises a shield, the passing blades do hit someone. The one pierced through the abdomen is Franklin. Through the portal, Valeria, Norin, and Doom see this. Voodoo sees this. Jane sees this. Strange sees this. Reed sees this. And Mordo sees this. His shame is immeasurable, and the Sheriff of Agamotto his magic desperately ends. Valeria yells for her brother as he falls to his knees. Doom calls for his men back, and Taskmaster, escaping the fight with the Kung Fu legends, leads them back through the portals. Reed gets up instantly, rushing to his son's aid. He grabs Franklin in his arms, and with slight of breath, he manages to make out. Val. Mom. Oh, Frank, cries Reed. My boy, my beautiful boy. Uncle Johnny, Alicia, Nate, this is their home. Reed's tears can fill a dam, for he's losing his son. Except he's not his son anymore. He's not a boy anymore. Even in the end, Franklin proves how much of a man he was. Prove me right, Dad. And like that, Franklin Richards dies. Reed is in a catatonic state. How could he fail his son this way? Valeria continues to yell as Doom closes the portal. He orders Norin to take Valeria to the dungeon, and he does regrettably. Taskmaster comes to Doom, asking why he didn't order death on Richards. I've done worse than kill him, says Doom. I've hurt him. Now, for the rest. Doom orders Norton L to prove his loyalty and to send out a message to his court hordes. To Namor, the Maestro, Thor, Osborn, the Novas, the Skrull, the Kree, and to Wanda, 
They are to enact a full-on search for possible traitors. Any who, who seem suspicious or act as a heretic will be subject to immense interrogation. Specifically, Maestro is ordered to go to the House of M to rough up some of the mutants. And Thor is ordered to hunt down the refugees of this resistance with the force of the Asgardian army. Streets will be cleaned. Homes will be invaded. People will be questioned. All for the glory of doom. Long live God and King. He also tells Norton to start their secret protocol, Project Renewal. Up above, peeking through the throne's window, is Nathan and Kate, who saw everything, especially where Norn was taken Valeria. The two snake away to save Nathan's cousin. On his knees, Mordo realizes what he'd done. His grip on Steven's strings is loose. Voodoo comes up from behind, picking Steven up. You know what must happen next, he tells the puppet. Yes, bring me to him, Steven responds. Brother Voodoo brings Steven's body to the man-thing, still on fire. On his way, they stop to see Wong and the recovering sorcerers. They all bow to the wooden doll. Now, up the above the burning creature, Voodoo raises Strange above. Before the final action, Steven asks Voodoo to help Mordo. He's now realized who he truly is, Voodoo, and those who understand this can be brought back. Voodoo nods to the former Sorcerer Supreme. The wizard drops Strange atop the man-thing, and the puppet starts to burn. But he does not yell, for it is not murder, it is sacrifice. The last essence and magic of Stephen Strange is given to the Man-Thing to save the purity of the swamp, to save the magic of New Kamartage, to save the fabric of reality. In the distance, Reed sits above his son's body, just looking. Jane comes up from behind, saying that they have to move. They have to find Thor, convince him to help them. Reed is silent. The Watcher appears above both, telling them that the hours grow shorter. You knew. Reed says lifelessly. My son's death. You and Hellstrom knew. Uwatuan is silent, and Jane asks where shall I be, be able to find Thor? The god of thunder will be where the defenseless shall, to the west at the gates of New Xandar. Before she goes, she puts her hand on Reed's shoulder, telling her how sorry she is. She understands this loss more than he knows. With a spin of his hammer, or her hammer, she, Jane launches into the air with incredible speed. Reed sits still, waiting for his son to wake up. Away in the mines of Atlantis, Susan feels a coldness behind her neck, the same odd feeling many experience at what seems to be random moments. Could it be an omen of good things to come, or something bad that just became? T'Challa tells her to keep digging, for the guards are approaching. It's the same two soldiers for the fifth time they've been counting for the past two hours. Shuri makes her way to them, sneaking some Atlantean metals she found while digging. When no one was looking, she made a little tool out of the metal, and in secret, she uses it to dig into Susan's collar, the same one prohibiting her use of powers. Finally, the chains break, and Susan turns invisible. Above the miners, those same two guards patrol, conversing about their favorite type of fish, but at a moment, they are knocked out one by one. One by one? By no one? It can't be. In fact, it is Susan using her powers and invisibility. She makes her way to the control room from this section of the prison to free the prisoners. Their shock collars are too unlocked. The miners are surprised, scared, and worried. In the sewers of New Manhattan, 
Steve Rogers is in his grandfather chair with a beer in his hand and a picture of Peggy Carter while watching television. A terrible late night talk show is on titled, I Wonder Man with Simon Williams. The title host is played by Nathan Fillion. He's interrupted by Sam, Bucky, and Rhodey. They have to try something. Rhodey's USB drive must make it to Osborne's helicarrier. You won't have any help from me, says Steve. Harebrained schemes like this, they've cost plenty of lives already. No more. The three are saddened to hear this, especially Sam, the one who inherited the man's shield. But he can't waste time getting angry at an old man. Maybe his fight is over. Incognito, the three head up to the surface with the hope of saving the world. Left alone, Steve looks to his team of vigilantes. Luke looks at him with disappointment, as does Frank and Jessica. Cloak and Dagger look to each other in worry, and Daredevil just looks down. Steve Rogers is unsure of himself. On Spider Island, Garfield's Peter Parker is working on his computer alongside Colson, Miles, and Patriot, scanning the perimeter. That is until he receives a message from what seems to be an unrecognizable link. I have the key, the message says. We can beat Osborne from the Hobgoblin. Peter recognizes the name. It's one of Osborne's. They've been found. But Coulson mentions that if they were found, they'd be dead. Miles decrypts the message, and as he goes deeper, they learn that Ned is the one who sent the message. They have to take it to Peter. As Garfield's Peter, Miles, Coulson, and Patriot go through the village, they find out that Peter is secluded uh, in a secluded hut on the other side of the island. When they arrive, they stop as they hear Peter talking to someone inside. He's desperate, asking for advice. He wants to do what he can to help, but isn't he already? He failed once, and if he tries to save the world again, how does he know he won't fail again? Peter looks down with the weight of the world on his shoulders. The heroes outside of the hunt listen, and they understand more of where he's coming from. The guilt, the pain, the damage. The person whose lives, who, uh, the person who lives in the hut tells Tom's P Peter, Peter, fixing the world isn't as simple as breaking it. I've seen you over the years, and you've worked every day to build a little piece of home for us, but you never understood that you're not the only Spider-Man around here. We cut back to Atlantis where we see T'Challa and Susan lifting the Wakandans, getting them ready for a revolution. Their arms cross as they bow to their return to King. Their return to Black Panther. The man continues. We all feel trapped, broken, and alone. And a lot of us are regretting these last few years. We cut to Wanda looking out her palace window down to her community of segregated mutants. Down below, Scott Summers is being helped home by Hope, which when they pass Wakan and Speed, who walk together, pondering what their next move is. When the Summers reach home, Jean opens the door and brings them in. The monologue continues. Even if we don't admit it, we've accepted something wrong as something right. We see the maestro, Patch, She-Hulk, and Hulkling headed to the House of M, and Thor headed to New Xandar. We cut to the refugees led through the savage land by Johnny Storm, who helps his wife, Cassie, and Hope help Carol as she's weakened. Kamala is treating her patients as they go. But that doesn't stop people from caring, says the man. It doesn't stop from changing for the better. We see Norrin, who looks at Valeria through her cell in a concerned way. He, need, he now realizes who she is and who he is and it doesn't stop them from changing for the worse. 
Back at New Camartage, Reed carries Franklin's body to a special grave ca- crafted by the Man-Thing. The teachers and students lift their palms, summoning a small flame in remembrance. From the distance, Mordo watches, still ashamed of his actions. Voodoo comes up from behind, offering a chance at redemption, a chance to defeat Doom. The man continues, When I was your age, I dealt with guilt, Peter, and I was lost. Toms Parker looks up to the man. How'd you come back? The man responds as he gets up, putting his hand on Parker's shoulder. It's revealed that this Peter Parker is from Earth-31 and is played by Tobey Maguire. He tells him, with help. Garfield's Peter, Miles, Coulson, and the Patriot come in, telling the other Peters about Ned's signal. They finally have a chance to fight back. Are they going to take it? Toby's Peter says, if we have a chance to get back to our worlds, our families, we have to take it. Miles asks if they're going to be enough against Osborne and Doom. Tom's Parker finally understands. He's inspired. We're more than enough. We have great power. Coulson smiles, as does the Patriot. The Spider-Men are ready to take back New York. Back at the grave of Franklin Richards, Reed stands over. It's been hours. Voodoo comes over to comfort him. The boy fought bravely because that's just the type of kid he was. He kept pushing because he knew he was right. And now, Reed knows too. My son can't have died for nothing, Voodoo. I will not accept that. Whatever I must do to save us, to beat Victor, I will. Voodoo tells him, You will have to sacrifice everything you are to accept the Beyonder's power. Your love, your joy, your pain, and your guilt. Everything that's made you human must be shed for this journey. Are you ready, Dr. Richards? Reed looks to Voodoo. Let's get to work. Our last scene is with Victor, alone in his throne room. His throne, the Tree of Worlds, begins to light up, with colors spreading throughout. Project Renewal has begun. Norton asks his master what he hopes to do with the energy of the Beyonders. I will do as I have always done, my dear Norton now. Prove my point, whatever the cost. Though the sun sets on doom, the war has just begun. End of part one. <laughs> oh my gosh, man. Bravo. Bravo, Julius. Wow, I mean, I think it was too short, man. I think it was too short. <laughs> that was too short for part one, man. I was waiting for, for more. You know what it reminded me of? Which is a movie I love that I think it's too much flack. Mm. This reminded me of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows part one. Yeah. A beautiful setup to just a downright epic iconic ending and i just really love it also reminded me too of of star trek beyond and all the separate journeys that the characters take together Mm -hmm. um separately and then uh by the very end you know that they come together in unison and and um clearly that movie ends but this feels like like that first two acts of star trek beyond which um which i love which you love i enjoyed you know, I I remember having issues with it at, at, at first, but I love the character work in Star Trek Beyond. And I love um, just the chemistry between every single one of them. Um, 
So the part one of your Secret Wars definitely reminded me of those two films in the best way possible. Well, thank you. Um, cool. There was a lot of epic stuff in here, man. I mean, from the very beginning, I love that you kind of filled in where Thor was because I know Thor has been kind of missing mm-hmm. in, in the pitches and for a specific reason. And this is why, because, you know, he, he dealt with Doom on his way to handle um, or to uh, control Earth and stuff like that with his heralds. And Doom, God Doom, handles Thor in a way where it's like, holy crap, this is very reminiscent to how striking that opening was in Infinity War mm-hmm. when Thanos was handling uh, Doom or was handling Thor and Loki. Absolutely nuts. I love how you open it like that very compelling throughout and um yeah i like like i said i think reed richards here man for me is is clearly the standout um that's why i really can't wait to see him in the mcu for sure it's it's because of your pitches why i'm more excited to see reed richards Mm -hmm. than i am to see scott summers than i am to see wolverine you know and even with me reading Joss Whedon's stuff where Scott has become like, yes, the number one guy for me. Yeah. You know, the creativity behind this content that you create, not nah, Reed Richards is my guy, man. Reed Richards is my guy, but it's all about that. It all comes down to that casting, you know, cause I tell you, I, I listen to this pitch and I, I don't think of John Krasinski. I, I, I don't, right. you know, I, I think, I think of, Reed, you know, and John's yeah. an awesome actor, and, and I'm sure he's going to be Reed Richards, you know, and I'm sure he's going to give us a great take on it. But yeah, this is a very specific Reed Richards here. Mm-hmm. And and I love the internal conflict that he deals with, which is himself, you know, and that's something that's very prevalent in the story that I find has just ginormous consequences within it. And I, and I love that he's traveling to um, find the Beyonders with his son. Franklin and mm-hmm. and they you know encounter all these different characters like Brother Voodoo and Man Thing. I love all these characters that you brought in, unexpected characters, but utilized in a way where it's it moves the narrative for, forward in a very productive way. They're, you're not just throwing characters in there and it's like these are Marvel characters. Mm-hmm. No, you're using them, you know, to their adva- to the advantage for the story, and it elevates everything. On top of that, um, I love Doctor Strange's death. I love that in his last moments, he offers his, you know, mystical power to man thing. I think that's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful way to end his character. I loved how you utilize T'Challa as well, you know, as a, as a, um, a protagonist who tries to convince Sue Storm that what she's done is completely wrong. And, you know, she needs to come back and kind of redeem herself, you know, because, she's an adult. She's conscious of what she's doing and stuff like that. And she's aware of what everyone's doing. So I love that the King was able to, you know, lay it down and be like, this is completely wrong. And, and you need to fix this because we've lost everything. Yeah. And at what cost, you know, very compelling stuff. I, I really loved it. And of course the Spider-Man taking back New York, that is such a great idea. You know, the fact that New York is like the epicenter of all these realities Mm-hmm. kind of spilling over with one another and then all the spider-men there with colson are like let's take it back like that is epic that is epic that is a very ingenious way of bringing all the spider-men together in one location 
dealing with something that's on the scale of a multiverse level threat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That is so cool, my man. So, so cool. You, you know, like when you, when you talk for a long time and you forget you're talking, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's how it feels every single time. And, and I, <laughs> I'm almost intimidated. I'm almost intimidated for part two. Cause that shit, <laughs> I mean, Jesus. Oh my God. I'm excited. It's the finale. It's, it's, the, the, finale. Finale. it's the beginning of the war. You know, this was all the setup and I love that Dr. Doom, you still have him and you know, you still have the core essential part of his character, which is, you know, I am, there, there, there's nothing that will prove me wrong. You know, yeah. there's nothing that will prove me wrong. Everything that I'm doing is correct. You know, and that's where we get the most fascinating characters. Yeah. You know, someone who just solely believes everything that they're doing is wholeheartedly correct and not necessarily out of purity, but out of, um, you know, logical. Ego. Yeah. Ego and, and logical <laughs> ideals. You know, that to me is, is menacing and, God, I can't wait to see Doom. God, I can't wait to see Doom, man. I can't wait to see it because I'm imagining in my head how the MCU, the tone, everything, just every piece of dialogue. Watch, he's. It's gonna be awesome, awesome, <laughs> awesome, man, awesome. I don't know what we're gonna do after MCU gives us X Men, Fantastic Four, Doom. I don't know what we're gonna do, but I'm gonna go we, home. We're gonna say we lived a life and we were able to exist during this time, and yeah, you know, not only watching the movies but also being able to create you know our own stuff like this yeah i mean it, what a time what a time it is yeah it's wild man i'm just glad that we're finally here doing this uh been very excited and you know working hard on it i mean I, there's a reason why there's like like almost like three month gaps between each one because it, oh, yeah. it takes forever you know it takes forever to do this shit yeah this ain't easy you make it look easy but no. we all know it ain't easy. It feels, you know, like a ton of bricks. Yeah, but <laughs> it's it's something that I'm looking forward to get up and, you know, I know there are a lot of viewers who can't wait to hear this stuff and, you know, just experience that escapism. Yeah, it's awesome, and it's why we do it and why we love to do it. <laughs> Me too. I, you said it perfectly. You said it more perfectly than I could have wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> nah, man, nah. It was awesome, man. It was it was Thank absolutely you. perfect. And I just want to let all our viewers know, for those of you who have listened from the beginning to the very end, you are outstanding. And we appreciate every single one of you. We love your guys' passion, your insight, and um, your viewership. You mm -hmm. are all extremely incredible. If you're new to this video and, and you're here and you're kind of lost, go back to X-Men in the MCU Part 1. It's all on Spotify. It's there. Julius made it available. Um, just like very, how this will be available. Yeah, very accessible to you all as well. So just if, if you're working out, you know, if you're doing homework, if you're on your way to work, go ahead and listen to this pitch. It's a long narrative for you guys, and it's, it's an experience. It's not just a YouTube video or, you know, just writing. It's an experience. So go ahead and check it out. And um, once you get to this part, we, uh, we have the last – part two secret wars the finale of the mcu from julius it's coming it's coming soon we're gonna get that recorded yeah look at that oh man that's awesome look at that and make Dude. sure you get to, make sure to get some marvel shirts up in here we both gotta wear our marvel shirts when we record that <laughs> exactly so be sure to stay tuned for that we got secret wars the finale 
of the MCU from Julius's pitch, the mind of Julius. We had Shakespeare, we had Tolkien. Now we have, now we got Julius. We got this guy. <laughs> exactly. So stay tuned for that. It's coming soon. For those of you who want to be a subscriber, please feel free to subscribe to our channel. We have over 3,500 subscribers and can't wait to have more of you on board. We're almost at 4,000 subscribers. Get us there. Which is awesome. Get us there. You guys are all amazing. If you want more of this, get us there. Yeah, exactly. This is something we love to do. You can expect a video from us most likely every day. Definitely every week. Yeah. So be sure to come back and listen to our conversations and share your insight too. You know, that's what makes this community so special because Mm -hmm. you all make this the greatest of all time. That's right. That's going to conclude this episode. Thank you all so much for watching and listening. My name is Angel. I'm Julius. And this is the Goat Movie Podcast. Thank you so much. The Goat Podcast is proof you don't have to look any further for movie news, reviews, trailer reactions, or special discussions. Subscribe, get notified about what's going on, and I promise you'll be entertained by our daily content on YouTube. If you want more, we're on Twitter at Goat Film Podcast, Instagram The Goat Podcast, and The Goat Movie Group on Facebook. Get connected with us, see what's happening, and make sure to love it while you're doing so.